Hi, this is TJ from Tabloid Junk. It was during the MJ50 party, a celebration of Michael's 50th and final birthday, when Jamin first shared his idea for the MJ cast with me. He knew exactly what it was going to be. He wanted to capture the kinds of conversations fans were having with each other about their idol. All things Michael Jackson, by the fans and for the fans. And for the next five years, would talk often of his desire to create the ultimate Jackson-related podcast. This idea has been reached and surpassed. The MJ cast gives entertainment and company to MJ fam all over the world. And more importantly, especially during the difficult times we currently find ourselves, it provides a platform for the truth to be told and shared. Congratulations on 100 incredible episodes of the MJ cast. Through your work, we've learned so much more about Michael's journey and artistic expression. Jamin and Q, you're my brothers. I love you. Okay, bye. Hey, MJ cast, it's Darren Hayes here. Incredulous that you guys are 100 episodes old. That's cray-cray. Like, what kind of moisturizer do you guys use? Like, what vitamins do you take? What exercise are you doing? Because you guys don't seem any older than maybe, I don't know, 20 episodes. I'm really jealous to do a great podcast. It's so difficult. You guys are awesome. Thank you for all the hours and the love. Thanks for having me on. And congratulations. Happy birthday. Woohoo. Hi, this is Courtney. And this is Cousin Cam. From the Janet Jackson podcast, Janet Today, Janet Tomorrow, Janet Forever. Just want to say congratulations on your 100 episode. Yeah, we're so proud of you and the work that you've done for the Michael Jackson and Jackson community. What a great accomplishment. We hope you keep it going and we hope for 100 more episodes. That's right. Catch you later, cousins. (laughs) (laughs) 100 shows. What an incredible milestone for you, MJ cast. This is Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat. I'm so happy that you had me as one of the episodes. I had a great time and I'm glad that the fans enjoyed it as well. Peace and much love to you all, all around the world. What's up, everybody? It is your favorite graphic designer pretending to be a remixer, Remixed by Nick. And I want to congratulate the MJ cast on 100 episodes. Keep them coming, guys. Hi, MJ cast. This is Silmo Tiller, author of the first book of Michael. Just want to say congratulations on your 100th episode. Well done and thank you for all you do for the fans. Big up. This is Annika from the MJ Innocent campaign. I just wanted to say a huge congratulations to the MJ cast for reaching 100 shows. What an amazing achievement. I absolutely love the shows and I know that Michael would too. It's such a great way to talk about and celebrate all things Michael Jackson. Keep up the great work and here's to the next 100. Hey guys, this is JD from History in the Mix and the A Submarine This Yellow podcast. I just want to give a big congratulations to Jamin, Q, Elise, and everybody on the MJCast squad for 100 episodes. That's a big deal, and every episode has been so amazing, but especially the one I'm on. But let's do another 100 more. Can't wait. Hi, this is Charles Thompson congratulating the MJCast team on reaching their 100th episode and looking forward to 100 more. Hi, this is Tito Jackson. Hello, Jackson fans, Michael Jackson's fans, and Tito Jackson and 3T fans. I'm here to uh, congratulate the MJ Cast podcast on their 100th episode. Keep up the good work, fellas. You're doing a great job. I wish you hundreds and hundreds more. Thank you. Congratulations.
The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to our 100th episode of the MJ Cast. I'm Jamin Bull, and I'm here with my co host, Q. For me, I think it's very fitting that it's just the two of us conducting this special interview. The two guys that started it, putting the focus back where it belongs the music. What you just heard were some congratulatory snippets from previous guests and friends of the show, and we'll be playing some more of those as we move throughout the episode. I'm pinching myself right now thinking we've made it to 100 shows. I feel really lucky that we're still able to do what we do, and ever since the beginning, it's always been one of our missions at the MJ Cast to release special episodes which document the stories of people who knew and worked with the King of Pop, Michael Jackson. And what better way to do that than with our guest today? We are incredibly fortunate to be interviewing for our 100th episode, one of Michael's key artistic collaborators, Mr. Brad Buxer. Brad worked with Michael from the dangerous era onwards, eventually becoming one of Michael's closest producers, studio engineers, musicians, and songwriters. Along with Michael Prince, there was no one else that Michael Jackson trusted more to capture his most personal creative visions. Today, we're going to learn all about what it was like to be in the studio with the King of Pop. Brad, welcome to our 100th episode of the MJ Cast. We're honored to have you here with us. Well, that was very nice. Thank you. And congratulations on your 100 shows. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, that's great. And where, where are you uh, Skyping in from today? I'm in Nashville. I'm looking at my studio right now, my mixing console and all the gear. And I'm sitting here on the couch and I'm talking to you guys and enjoying it. And can't wait to tell the audience what it was like to work with Michael and the friendship that we had and the the life that we had together. Well, we also want to learn a little bit about yourself and, and how you got to where you are. Brad, and I understand, and I think we're going to address it later in the show, but you're a commercial pilot now. Yeah, I'm a I'm an airline pilot, and I also teach people how to become airline pilots in the simulator. So, um, wow, yeah, so it's pretty interesting. So, I upgraded to captain, and then there were some positions available to actually become sim instructors, which is where you go into this twenty-six million dollar machine and train other people how to become airline pilots and give them their check rides and do stuff like that. And I I love electronics and machines and computers, so. I took to that real well, and I've been doing that now for about the last nine months. I've uh, been at the airlines for about 11 years, and I still fly the line. Uh, the last time I flew a solid month was December, and I've been in the sim for the last four or five months, all of May, and then I'll probably fly the line for uh, June. But it's, well, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful gig. Uh, I've always loved flying. So I'm actually a flight attendant for a major carrier in Australia. So hats That's off fantastic. to you, and thanks for keeping us safe. Sure, thank you. That's amazing. Yeah, it's ex- how cool is that? 
Can, so. can I before we get into the to the I guess the music stuff and more of your life stuff? I'll just continue this nerdy little chat with one more question. <laughs> what aircraft are you endorsed on? Embraer one seventy five and one ninety five. Very nice. Very nice. Cool. I'm on the 737 and the A330. Great. Great. Okay. Very cool. Excellent. All right, Jamin, we'll stop the nerd <laughs> chat now. That's but I had to get that out of my system. You know, that's, hashtag, that's great. hashtag See, that's, crew that's life. Amazing. <laughs> That's cool. Like. It, it's totally fine. It was the same when we talked to Michael Prince. It went all Apple and Mac for like a little bit at the start of the interview. So, <laughs> right. Thank God for editing, right? And, <laughs> and we can, to get the order of everything right. Yeah, I think I think Q speaks the same language I do as far as the flying because it's its own world. You it know, like really Crew is. Life is an app that we use. Yeah, we use Crew yep. Life. I've got one of my six monthly exams coming up shortly. Actually, I really need to sort of get some studying for that. Listen, even though I'm an instructor, I have my training coming up in three days. I go to Indianapolis and do my uh, knowledge validation, which we have to do each year. You know, I'm, I'm there for training for two days, and uh, actually I'm feeling really comfortable with it. They do make you study, and they do make you work, and that's why it's so safe for people to fly. There you go, Jamin. You're a bit of a nervous flyer. That should help put your ease slightly, if it could. Well, I think I'd be very comfortable if Brad was, was captaining the flight. But uh, what an incredible life you're leading, Brad. You know, you've gone from crafting musical masterpieces with the King of Pop to, to piloting aircraft. Incredible. And what we usually like to do with our guests is uh, go right back to where it all began. So could you paint a picture of us, please, around like what your childhood was like? I started piano lessons at the age of seven. I took to it pretty easily, and so I enjoyed it. And when I was 12 years old, it was a way to be popular to a limited extent, but it was it was fun. I'd play for my friends, and they liked it. When I was in high school, I would play for people and enjoyed all those experiences, and I was doing real well at it. So when it was time to go to college, I decided to do what is insane. You know, nobody should get a music degree because it's like there's no way to make a living that way, right? But I didn't think of any sort of return or any sort of goal, except I wanted to be the best piano player I could be. So I went to college to Arizona State University because I grew up in Phoenix as a jazz performance major and did real well there. Graduated there in 1980 and played in a band in Tempe, Arizona called the Jetsons for a few years. Very popular band, very popular. And then in 1983, November 8th, 1983, I went to LA and I didn't know anybody except one manager and I knocked on his door, Albanetta, and he had an artist named Matthew Wilder. And Matthew Wilder had a song called Break My Stride that was number 47 on the pop charts. And I stayed at Al's house because I didn't have any place to stay. He let me stay in his basement. And I had the keyboards that I had, a few keyboards and drum machines. And um, each week, Break My Stride was going up in the charts. And before long, it was number two in LA and number five worldwide on the pop charts, if I'm getting this right. So... Now it's 1984, and we're doing all these TV shows. Al has me put together Matthew's band. We do Solid Gold and Soul Train and American Bandstand. And we did nine TV shows that year in 1984. And it was during that time I met Gary Lazabal, Stevie Wonder's engineer, and started doing work for Gary's girlfriend at Wonderland, Stevie's studio, as a favor to Gary. And Stevie came in and heard me play and asked who that was. And... Then I started working on Stevie stuff, and Stevie put me in his band. And so for 1984, it was Matthew Wilder. For 85, it was working with Gary Lazabal 
and Stevie in the studio, at first with just Gary Lausbaugh's girlfriend, Nina Tolbert, and then with Stevie. 1986, we're now on tour for In Square Circle. And so from 86 through 91, I toured with Stevie. And Stevie's the nicest person you've ever met in your life. And Nate Watts is one of my very best friends. That's Stevie Wonder's MD. I just talked to him about a month ago. He's a lovely, wonderful, dear friend. When we weren't on tour with Stevie, which is about six months a year, I was doing a lot of session work and working with Smokey Robinson and a lot of the Motown people and got a call to work with Michael and went in. And this is 1989. So I'm still in Stevie's band for another three years. And I hit it off really great with Michael. Billy Petrell is the one who called one of Michael's producers. Billy's a wonderful man. Very, very talented. And kept getting called back. Basically, this was the beginning of the Dangerous album. So the, the players were Brian Loren, really good guy, producer, working with his engineer, Richard Cottrell. And then there was me, Matt Forger, Bruce Swedeen, different people, an engineer named Bart. I'm not sure if Brad Sundberg was around then. I just can't remember. But I did a lot of work with Billy, did a lot of work with Bruce. So I was kind of working in both camps. I wasn't working in Brian Loren's camp. Even though Brian is a really good friend of mine, he was working exclusively with uh, Richard Cottrell, his engineer. So I was working with Billy, and I was working with Bruce. And Michael was in both of those rooms. Billy was, you know, like, we'd do black or white or this or that. So I worked through the entire Dangerous album. The very first thing we did is once Michael found out I was in the very first session, I, I was doing, like, drum programming. And I remember the first time I walked into Westlake, I've never been starstruck by anybody. I just think it's ridiculous. But I remember seeing him through the double glass and he was wearing a hat and it was like, it was just a, I was starstruck. It's like I had a huge smile on my face. I couldn't believe who I was looking at, you know, and I'd already been working with Stevie for years and working with other Motown artists. And, but that, it sort of blew me away. So that first session I did with him in 1989, I think it was July, it was Billy Betrell and me and Michael. And he just kept looking at me and smiling and I'd be programming the drums and, if I made a mistake, I'd look at him and he'd laugh. And, you know, it's just a really good session. And so I got called back. And the next thing is Michael finds out I'm in Stevie Wonder's band. And he goes, come back to the piano. So we go where the piano is, right? He goes, I have a melody. And the next thing that happened is an hour and a half later, we had done Heal the World. And uh, I remember Billy Petrell saying, if you want writing credit on this, speak up now. And I said, well, I don't. You know, he already had the melody. I, I don't think I'm going to ask for any writing credit. You know, I'm new here. And I didn't. And Michael wrote that song. I didn't write it. But I figured out all the chords for it and did what an arranger does, right? Um, Michael doesn't play piano. So I took what was in his head and we came up with Hill of the World, which isn't even one of my favorite songs. But at any rate, then we did Black or White, which is the same thing. Michael sang the lick that the guitar plays. And I figured out the piano parts, which was basically just... E suspended to E, to E add nine to E. It's just triads. Then that went over to the guitar, but basically we did a demo. And on that, on Black or White, that was kind of Billy Betrell's baby. So I was working with Billy Betrell on that. And then, I don't know, another session, Michael says, I have a melody. So we sit down and we do Will You Be There, right? And so I figure out the chords of that and we do a demo on that. And that's the way it sort of worked with Dangerous, where he liked what I was able to do in extracting what was in his head and getting a song out of it. And 
then those songs would become what was on the album. Like when we first did Heal the World, all we had after that hour and a half was a piano track, right? And it was a rough piano track. When I came back and heard it again, Michael was always very secretive. So you never knew what was going on because he wouldn't tell you. So like I'm doing other stuff with Michael, but I've forgotten about Heal the World. And now I hear it on the speakers about eight months later and it's this glorious, huge orchestrated piece of music where all the chords are exactly the same, the voicings are the same, everything's the same, the form is the same, but now it's almost a finished record. So it sort of blew me away, and that was the first time I realized how secretive it was, how we worked. We did the Dangerous album, we did a bunch of songs on it, I played on five songs. It was a, a wonderful, wonderful project. So before I move on from that, do you have questions about the Dangerous album? Well, Brad, you've, you're, you've basically done the interview for the whole era. <laughs> that was amazing and... Incredible and personally, that's really cool. Wow, you've you've helped us a lot by answering so many of the questions that we actually had in our list already. If I could, I just wanted to jump back a tiny little bit. You did mention that you worked with um, Stevie Wonder, uh, Smokey yeah. Robinson, The Temptations. Were they? Diana yep. Ross, Motown legends, and and still musical legends even to this day, were they some of the musicians that inspired you in your youth? And also, did you see any commonalities when you started working with Michael or any stark and surprising differences? Well, I mean, what's interesting is all the licks that a piano player will use in Stevie's band work with Michael's songs. So that was very interesting. When I I'm jumping around now, but when I brought Isaiah Sanders into the band after I became the musical director, Isaiah steps into the band and he goes, oh my God, these are Stevie licks. Going from Stevie's band to Michael's band, even though Stevie's gig is a jazz gig and Michael's gig is an R&B pop gig, the licks are the same, which is extraordinary. Very interesting stuff. And it's all based on blues stuff. As far as Stevie stuff, that was a jazz gig. Wonderful, wonderful players in that band. And... The shows were long. They were almost four hours long, sometimes three and a half hours long, four shows a week. We do a show, get on the bus and sleep through the night, try to sleep through the night, get to the next state if we're touring the United States in 86, and then have to be a sound check at 10 o'clock and then have to play that night. So it was a lot of work. Stevie's shows were long. Stevie would, you know, besides playing, Stevie would also talk to the audience about political stuff and all that. So that's Stevie. With Michael, Michael only does two and a half shows a week. And Michael doesn't talk to the audience about anything except I love you and stuff like that. Michael's shows are two hours and 20 minutes long, a lot more intense. In other words, nothing can go wrong in, in Michael's shows. Where with Stevie, you know, sometimes we'd have like MIDI accompaniment. Stevie had a drum machine underneath the keyboard, like during My Sharia Moore. He'd hit play and certain sounds would play, right, that would accompany the band. And one time the machine messed up and all these weird sounds were playing. Stevie just stopped the song and started laughing. And we started over again. Where with Michael, you would never in a million years do that. You know, Michael would, would have stomped his foot and kept the song going and just gotten through it. So it was, a, it was a completely different type of gig. It's much more, Michael's gigs were way intense. It, it, was, it was a weird two hours and 20 minutes because it wasn't so much that it was fun. It just had to be perfect. And so if everything went perfect, it's like you're just glad for the night to be done. If something did go wrong, like smooth criminal, like a production thing, the scrim wouldn't come down where he dances behind this giant curtain, 
which isn't even a band thing, it's a production thing, but anything that went wrong, I would hear about. Michael basically only talked to about three people on the tour, and it was Michael Bush, who did his wardrobe, it was Karen Faye, who did the makeup, and it was me. That's his right, and that's how he worked. Yeah, if something went wrong, I'd get a call at six in the morning saying, what happened last night with this production thing? Or, you know, or any, anything that was on his mind that he didn't like, I would get the call. So I'm sort of jumping around here. So let me, let me stick to your question. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Because you were jumping around too much there because you were, you know, comparing Michael to Stevie, which is fantastic. Thank you very much. We want to dive in a little bit now into the Dangerous album like you were getting to before. And you mentioned uh, the creation of Heal the World and that you worked on a number of other tracks on that album. Now, clearly the album has two sort of different sounds to it. There's the new Jack Teddy Riley stuff going on for about five, five or six tracks. And then there's a lot of the other stuff on the album that seems to be a bit more sort of organic and coming from Michael's heart. So that's you nailed it. You nailed it because the stuff that he would do with me is the stuff that came from his heart. And then the stuff he would do with Teddy would be kind of Teddy's thing. You know what I'm saying? Where Michael would put a vocal on it, but depended on Teddy to come up with a lot of it where when Michael worked with me, Michael could be more himself. And a lot of the, tracks that I did with him are as pure Michael as you'll ever get. You know, like when Rodney Jerkins would do a track, Rodney's bringing a lot to the table. So Michael's just a lot of times putting a vocal on, on one of Rodney's tracks, where with me, he would collaborate from the very start in building the track. And that's how it worked for five different album projects for Dangerous, History, Blood on the Dance Floor, Invincible, and the Ultimate Collection. So in the Dangerous Sessions, how aware were you and your team around what was going on with Teddy's work and that kind of thing? Was there a direction like this album's going to end up being what it was? Well, it's a great question. Teddy didn't come in until the very end. And what happened is that the camps that were working were me and Brian, right? Brian was coming up with tracks and I was coming up with stuff. And Michael would go back and forth between both camps. Remember, Billy Betrell's a producer, right? And Bruce Swedeen's a producer and an engineer. And Billy's a great engineer. But the people that were actually programming drums and playing piano and stuff like that were, were me and Brian. Well, I'm working on my set of tracks with Michael. Brian Lorenz working on his set of tracks with Michael. And what happened is that the stuff I was working on with Michael moved forward. And I think this stuff with Brian, and it was excellent stuff. I love Brian. I think what happened is that Michael brought Teddy in and ended up doing a bunch of tracks with Teddy at the end of the project. I did at least five tracks on the album where it was a lot of collaborative stuff, right? And then Teddy did his tracks, like In the Closet, which is just a masterpiece, you know? And that's how the project kind of went down. So I'm there from start to finish. Brian's there from start to a certain point. And then at the very end, Teddy comes in and kind of finishes up the album, if that makes sense. And, and you're right. It's two distinct sounds. There's the Michael sound or the Michael and Brad sound. I don't want to be vain, but all the stuff I've done with them, there's always a common thread. Like up, up until from way back in Dangerous up until the very end, Beautiful Girl in the Back. When Michael and I do a track, it has a, a theme to it. It always has a certain vibe to it, which is much different than Ronnie Jerkins and Brian Loran and Teddy Riley. You know, so you're right. Michael's the stuff that Michael does with me is organic. And, it, and it's song stuff. It's not groove stuff. It's song stuff. It's Stranger in Moscow. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's just pure melody stuff. So, Just to clarify for our listeners, for the Dangerous album, 
the tracks you worked on, you mentioned Heal the World. Uh, who is it? Black who is or it? Be there. Yeah, I've got a list here. Um, hold on. There's five, and I, I don't know. Uh, who is it? Will you be there? Black or white? Heal the world. And I don't know what the fifth one is, so let me just look at the list. Uh, <laughs> there's like, <laughs> okay, so let's see. Uh, I'm just going to read the list, and then um, Faces, What More Can I Give? Rich Girl, which is unreleased, Speechless, Stranger in Moscow, Childhood, Money, Little Susie, They Don't Care About Us, Break of Dawn, 2000 Watts, The Lost Children, Hollywood Tonight, the Way You Love Me, Beautiful Girl, In the Back, The Loser, which is unreleased, Adore You, which is unreleased, Days of Gloucestershire, which is unreleased, Children's Holiday, Blood on the Dance Floor, Morphine, Black or White, Jam, Heal the World, Who Is It, Will You Be There? Dangerous, Jungle, Unreleased, Photographs, Colorblind, Best of Joy, DS, Don't Be Messing Around, Ghosts, Little Susie, Someone Put Your Hand Out, Place of No Name, Blue Gangster, and Pavane. So that's 40 songs. Wow. Oh, well, you've just caused a uh, radioactive meltdown in the fan community. I can guarantee it, <laughs> because they will be they will be analysing every single one of those titles that you just mentioned, and there's going to be so much conversation about the ones that maybe people haven't heard of. There you go. That's there's great. That's there's great. the there's the source for the for the meltdown. You know, the very bad <laughs> stuff. Sometimes, if you work with someone a long time, I worked with them for twenty years from 1989 till the beginning of 2008. And sometimes when you work with somebody a long time, it gets stale and it, it was anything but. It got, kept getting better and better. So the very last things we did together, I mean, we worked in 2000, all of 2007, beginning of 2008, but in 2004, before his trial, we did Beautiful Girl, which is one of the best songs that we've ever done, ever. In the back, one of the best songs we've ever done. And he has running credit on that. I was the one he collaborated with on The Way You Love Me. And in fact, when Sony released The Ultimate Collection, the only new songs on that multi-CD you know, multi pack were three songs that I did with Michael. And, and those three songs were Beautiful Girl in the Back and The Way You Love Me. And Sony picked those songs. And like I said, that's like I remember when we did Days of Gloucestershire. It's like late 2004. And it's one of the most beautiful demos I've ever heard. And it's so rough, but it's like, he doesn't really have his own life, so he writes about other people's lives, and he was writing about my life. And he did two songs about my life. One is called The Loser, and there's a story behind that, and the other is Days of Gloucestershire. And all I'm trying to say is I can go into the histories of these songs and stuff, but what I am trying to say more than anything is that rather than this, the songs getting stale or lacking of ideas, the very most beautiful stuff that we ever did, ever, was at the end. It just kept getting better and better. And and I don't know what that's about, but that's just the way it worked. You know. And he's he was the genius. I'm not the genius. He he was the one, but I was just lucky enough to be the one that he liked to work with. And he was able to work with. We worked seamlessly. It was like completely like we never would sit down and say where he'd say, Oh, I got this idea. I wanted it to be we never had a conversation about anything. It was never heavy. It was like Let's just say, Brad, just play the piano. You know, that's how Stranger in Moscow came about. Or he'd say, I have a melody. Let's work it out. And we just do it. Like, there was nothing ever heavy. Totally organic. The music spoke for itself, meaning when music is generating its own emotional energy and not having to hype it up yourself, saying, oh, this is coming together and it's going to be so great. When you're not saying anything, you're just looking at each other smiling because it's just working. It's just working. And that's that's how it worked. 
It's, it was like the opposite of work. It was the, one, the most joyful thing you can ever imagine. It was absolutely wonderful. I think that spirit certainly shines through in the music as well. Let's continue on that dangerous thread. At, at some point during the dangerous era, you became the musical director for the tour. Roughly halfway through, Greg Fillengains decided to step down. Could you talk to us a little bit about why he decided to step down and then what you tweaked or changed when you, when you came into the tour? Greg's a genius, first of all. He's way better than me. You know, Greg's one of the most talented people I've ever met in my life. He's a genius. For whatever reason, Michael had me do the Super Bowl music, and I, have, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Greg didn't do that gig. In other words, I did the music for it, and then when we actually went and filmed it and did Super Bowl 27, I think it was Pasadena. I think it was 93. I'm not sure, 92 or 93, but it was Super Bowl 27. Greg wasn't, he, he wasn't on stage for that, and he left, and I became the musical director, and I don't know what his reasons were. Maybe, maybe the guy's so good and had so many other opportunities, he just wanted to, you know, he had a ton of options. It's like he's the best in the world at what he does. So I, I don't know, but he stepped down and I took over and I brought in Isaiah Sanders from Stevie's band as the other keyboard player because, you know, we need two keyboard players. And what I did that was a little different maybe than what other people do is even when I was in Stevie's band, I'd always take the shows. And when I would we'd be on stage, I brought a digital audio tape recorder. It was called a DAT player back then. And I'd record the shows from my keyboard, right? And, uh, you know, it's just picking up the stage monitors. But I was always very interested to see how the show sounded. And then with Michael, did the same thing. It was always recording the shows and kind of taking them apart. And when I took over, now I'm getting my recording tapes from front of house, from Trip Califf, meaning that I'm getting the show tapes that are actually coming off the mixing board for the concert. I'm listening to them at the end of the night. So we get done with the show. And this is while I was just the other keyboard player. When I started playing with Michael and I was just the other keyboard player and Greg was running things, I think I was still either recording from my keyboard or getting tapes from Trip. But whatever I was doing, I was breaking down the shows. And because I, I, I was interested in it. And um, when I took over, I knew the way I wanted it to sound for Michael. In other words, David Williams said, Brad gives the artists exactly what they want, where I don't try to embellish anything. I don't try to show off. I don't try to do anything. I try to sonically give Michael exactly what I know he wants. And I hear things through other people's ears. So I could always hear a mix through Michael's ears. And I always knew if we're in the studio, what Michael would approve that the engineers have done and what he wouldn't. I'm able to do that really well. I can he hear through his ears. So I think that's one of the reasons why we work so well together. So basically, I was able to do the arrangements for the songs, and I was able to make the song sound really, really good to Michael. Now, Michael's not going to sit there and listen to the show each night. What Michael does watch the dancing. He's interested in how the dancing looks. Well, the music is striped onto the dancing. So when Michael's watching the dancers, he's listening to the music that we did that night, right? And so he's hearing exactly what I'm doing. And the show started sounding better and better and better because I kept breaking it down, tweaking it, and kind of fixing little things, whether they were sounds, whether they were parts, whatever they were. I remember with David Williams in starting something, David would do that solo. And I bless his heart. I love David. We miss him so much. But it was, there was a point where it was getting kind of sloppy. 
And so one day I just took him aside and I go, I want you to hear what you sounded like last night. And I just played him his solo and he goes, oh my God. And it was forever fixed after that. So a lot of times there's so many different ways to approach the different players. And I had great, great, wonderful relationships with Jennifer Batten and with Donnie Boyette and with Ricky and with, with all the players. And it was easy for me to work with them and talk to them. And it was easy. They respected me and they liked the arrangements and Michael loved what I did. And it just worked. It worked beautifully. So the show tapes I did for Michael, he loved, he, he loved it. Any, anybody will say that. And that's why I did uh, so many tours with them, you know, there's so. a story that if we don't ask you, we will be absolutely crucified by Michael's fans. Could you please tell us a story behind the infamous Brad, what you're going to do live performance of, I just can't stop loving yeah, you. Yeah, that's, on a, that's the so weird because tour. it was a choreography thing where, and I don't know why people are so interested in that. But, but, no, I, I'm so glad you asked the question, but it's like, it was such a minor thing. It was like at the end of the song, Saida and Michael on stage, come together and they never did that and so i just kept the song going an extra one or two choruses and so what's happening is that the choreography was never completed and remember in any show choreography you know one cue leads to another cue and leads to this or that so everything is triggered from everything else right on a song like smooth criminal dancing will trigger fireworks which will trigger sounds it's, it's like that so i'm waiting for the choreography to finish it never finished and so i I didn't know if Michael wanted the song to keep going or whatever. So I kept it going and I, I kept it going longer than I should have. And then Michael said, Brad, what are you going to do? And I, 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 I stopped the song, you know, at, at the, at the proper point to stop it. But I, and it was such a non-event. He wasn't mad, nothing. There were so many other points in my relationship with him over the 20 years where maybe I would worry if he was mad at me or if I had said something wrong or this or that, that was a non-event. It even says on the internet, uh, Michael Fire, the musical director. Well, I, I did all the, the tours after that, right? I was never <laughs> exactly <it's> crazy. <laughs> I never left. It's like, how would I get fired? But it's so silly how, uh, you know, what people are interested in. It was a complete non-event. And that's well, all thank, it was to that. Thank you yeah, for sure. putting it into context. And, yeah, I'm kind of glad you asked that because, <laughs> you know, I, I I hear about it a lot and it's like, there were so many other things that were so much deeper than that or scarier than that. That was a nothing thing. Michael was amazing to work with. He, he would never yell or get mad at you. If he didn't like what you were doing, you, you probably weren't going to stay around. And he certainly wouldn't talk to you. But now, it doesn't mean he didn't, you know, I've seen him cry. I've seen him throw a phone across the room when he's been hurt. Believe me, I've seen, I've seen a lot. But he was a gentle, sweet man. And... When he didn't like what somebody was doing, he would have somebody else kind of deal with that. You know, he would never rant or yell or anything like that. And with me, I remember on other gigs, we'd be on tour and something would go wrong. And somebody would say, are you mad at Brad? Because I'm in charge of everything. And Michael would say, Brad doesn't make mistakes. I remember once Karen Faye told me that, you know, there was an issue at a show where some of the equipment had malfunctioned. And Michael was pretty freaked out. And Karen said, I don't know what happened, but Karen came back to me and said that. She said, are you upset with Brad? And he goes, he goes, absolutely not. He goes, Brad doesn't make mistakes. He goes, in other words, he had already realized it was, it was another situation that had caused a problem. So 
it was a very smooth and harmonious working environment with him. It was absolutely wonderful. He wouldn't talk to you if, if it was anything else. He just wouldn't. He wouldn't talk to you. You could be perfect, a perfect human being, and if he didn't need you for something, he needed me to do his music, whether it was on tour or in the studio. So if he needed you, he'd open the door, and now you're talking to him. And if he didn't like the way the vibe was, you'd be out. So it was a thing where it was just uh, beautifully harmonious in the studio and on tour. I don't know how else to put it. That's just the way it was. Can we ask before we, because if we could talk literally about the dangerous era for days and days, because it's such an incredibly creative era and the tour was amazing. But before we move on to maybe the history era, could you share maybe some of your highlights of the dangerous era, whether it be in the studio or on the tour? Just what's some of the, the absolute standout highlights you look back on from that whole I mean, beautiful era? Life, life is thin, so the things that are stand out in my life that are the most glorious are going to sound thin. And I'll tell you one of the times, it was just me and Bruce and Michael. We're sitting in the lounge of one of these studios. I'm sitting with the most powerful two people in the music world on the planet. It's just Bruce and Michael and me. And I can't believe I'm even sitting with them. And this is, I don't know, at some point in the Dangerous album, and I'm just like, I'm just blown away by it. And they, they're giving me so much respect, and they're treating me as a complete equal, and that blew me away. I remember every Friday at Record One during the Dangerous album, the Slam Dunk Sisters would make the great, most amazing food for the crew, right? These two sisters came in and cooked on a Friday, and so the crew, and it was a very small crew, some people that we've already talked about, Bruce and Billy and Brian and me and Matt and so forth, um, the Slam Dunk Sisters would make really good food. And I remember one Friday when, you know, I'm just kind of eating my food and just we're all in the living room. Record one is almost like a house. It's, it's like a house that was converted to a studio. And so we're sitting in the living room and Michael just keeps staring at me, right? And he keeps beaming. And it's like, it got to the point where it was getting so weird that I had to back behind somebody so he couldn't see me. But that's when I realized how much he enjoyed the work I was giving him. Meaning that he was, I, that's when I realized how happy he was with me. And that was, a, that was a high point. And the high points with Michael, I think, aren't so much like having fun or jokes. He's not, he's not particularly, he's not like a comedian. He doesn't sit there and tell jokes. He's not social. He's very much by himself. So the high points were just when you're doing work with them. And when you're doing work with them and it's going so seamless, you're talking about other stuff like religion. Like I know exactly how he thinks about God and religion and those sorts of things I may describe someday. I don't know. But, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm not going to, you know, I want to let him have his privacy and his thoughts. And But I know exactly how he thinks about God and exactly how he thinks about religion and exactly how he thinks about a, a lot of things. I know him better than just about anyone on the planet because I was always there. If I wasn't on tour with him, I'd be in the studio with him or I'd be up at the ranch or I'd be working with him over the phone from the ranch to my house at three in the morning. So we got to be extremely close. We're three months apart in age. So we were both, both born in 1958 and I was born in May and he was born in August. So just one of those things where I, I've never had any inclination to want to be close to any pop star I could care less I just not into it you know and probably because I didn't care you know it 
kind of took pressure off him. You know, I'm not, not even trying to get to be his good friend. I'm not doing anything. We're just having a blast doing music. Yeah. And it's just that energy is just manifesting its whole, it's taking on a life of its own. And it's, it, it happened that we had an incredibly strong friendship, you know? So it's just, it's pure luck. It's just has nothing to do with anything that is about me. It just happens that my personality worked with his personality and then musically we worked really well together. So I'm, I miss him intensely. I dream about him. I, I love him. He's the best friend I ever had in my life. You know, it's like insane. Brad, there was a moment at the end of the Dangerous World Tour where you would have been seeing your friends in quite a bit of pain, I'd imagine. The, the tour was canceled. We don't want to get into all the allegation stuff, but all of that was going on in the background. He was obviously in a lot of pain uh, in his in his private world and, and medically. I mean, what was going through your mind as the musical director as this was unraveling? Well, here's the thing. We're in Mexico City doing eight shows in a row, right? Not in a row. He never did back-to-backs. But um, we're doing eight shows in Mexico City. And the first third of the show, we do a few songs, and then he goes off and there's a break. And I'm playing the keyboards, and he's getting his makeup done or whatever, right? getting ready for the next part of the night. And he's back there with Karen Faye and he's crying, he's sobbing. And he's sobbing because he doesn't know what the audience is thinking, right? He's terrified. And he comes out and we get on with the night. But basically the very last show we did in Mexico City and Liz Taylor was there that night and was probably the worst show I've ever seen him do. He still managed to pull it off, but he was sluggish and he wasn't, clear, right? Whatever was going on, it wasn't the normal Michael. That's when Liz Taylor decided to take him to Betty Ford Clinic or wherever she took him. That's when the Dangerous Tour ended. We went back and I went back by myself. The band went back as a group. And I I remember getting a call from some news people, TV stations. I didn't take the call. I don't really do many interviews or anything. And uh, yeah, I, I remember exactly when that ended. It was weird, but it was, I knew how much pain he was going through and it was just he couldn't keep going on so it was time for a break you know it didn't mean that anything was ending michael always worked and even at the worst points in michael's life and there were much worse points than than then with the first uh crazy crap that was going on with the horrible things that people said about him he was always able to work he is the strongest human being i've ever seen in my life he's incredible the guy no matter what's going on, the guy's not going to lie in bed and not get out of bed. He's going to get up and he's going to work no matter what's going on. So as far as me and him, there was no break. When he got done with whatever he was doing, we went back to work. There's a place in your heart And I know that it is love And this place was brighter than tomorrow You'll find there's no need to cry In this place you feel there's no hurt or sorrow There are ways to get there If you care enough for the living Make a little space Make a better place Heal the world
John Barnes, producer, writer, musician, and arranger with Michael Jackson. Make sure you pay attention to the MJ cast. It's great. We did Stranger in Moscow. That was the first track that we did for history, but we did that before the history album began. And that track was born in Moscow. He got back on the saddle and we started after the Dangerous Tour. We started prep for the history album. For many months, I was up at the ranch and we were, we were just doing stuff. Then it was time to formally start the history album, so he sends me to New York. And it was just me, not Bruce or anyone else. And I grabbed Eddie Delena, who's a good friend of mine, a really good engineer. And we went to New York. For the first month I was out in New York, and we were at Sony Studios, not at the Hit Factory. I'm just putting together Stranger in Moscow. And when he came out a month later, he heard it and 
was shouting at the top of his lungs how much he loved it, was howling, you know, so, and that's how, that's how the history album got started. I guess there were probably a number of tracks like Stranger in Moscow that had actually was born before the album officially started getting put together. Can you remember any of the other tracks that you started on maybe years before that then progressed and did make the cut I mean, for the final history tracks? Stranger in Moscow was such a big part of what I did for him. That was probably my biggest contribution to him of anything I've ever done. And that's all I was concentrating on. As far as like, was he working with other people or doing other tracks? He may have been. I don't know. All I know is that I was so involved with just what I was working on with him. And once he came out there, then he would work with me and we'd be developing tracks together like They Don't Care About Us or, you know, just different tracks where he would come in day after day. And it was just me and him sitting down at the keyboard coming up with stuff. And he was crafting stuff with me for that first month in New York. And then once he was out there, I was with him every single day in New York. So and we were just working on a variety of tracks. We go from one track to another. And so and he didn't work that way with other people. The stuff that him and I did, he would you're listening to him crafting parts. Even though he didn't play the parts, you're listening to Michael Jackson's craftsmanship in the music. And with the other songs he did with other people, you know, the people he's worked with are great, you know, like Rodney and all the other people. He didn't really work as closely crafting the tracks. You know, he would put the vocals on and, and stuff like that. But with me, he would, you know, I remember with They Don't Care About Us is day after day after day. We're just sitting there in front of the emulator, crafting out percussion parts and just putting the song together, you know, fabricating it. You're listening to so much of his production chops and the stuff that I worked with him on, like money. Let's deep dive into Stranger because it is an absolute highlight and just creative peak, I think, of Michael's um, output. And I know when I first got into Michael Jackson, when I was like, you know, 15 or 16, I remember buying the History album and that was a song I just played on repeat night after night after night. It just totally relaxed me as a... It's beautiful, yeah. as As a young kid you know, dealing with some anxiety and stuff at high school. It was just a song that totally relaxed me. I want to know how it began. So, I mean, there's conflicting stories. There's the story that it grew out of Sonic the Hedgehog number three, the work you did on that. There's there's stories that Michael conceived it while he was in Moscow dealing with a very difficult time. I'll tell you exactly how this worked. Michael worked out a deal with Sega where Michael was going to do the music for Sonic the Hedgehog 3. Then he called me and he says, Brad, get to work on doing the music for Sonic the Hedgehog 3. And he really wasn't up for doing a whole lot. Me and Matt Forger at Record One for a solid month did cues. And I delegated other people to help me, like Doug Grigsby and Daryl Ross and different people. But at the end of the day, we had about 41 cues. And they sounded really good. And so now we're in Moscow playing concerts there. And, you know, Michael's going through a lot, as you can imagine at that time, right, with his situation. And so he calls me at 10.30 in the morning to come to his hotel. I come there, and he's really, really sad, and there's a piano there, an upright piano, and he goes, just start playing something. And so one of the cues, like the very first cue I did for Sonic, was the verse for Stranger in Moscow, only played in a very cartoon-like way. But it's the exact notes, the exact key, the exact voicings, everything, right? So... When I came to his room at 10.30 in the morning, I had, back then we used cassettes, and I had a cassette of the 41 cues, and I thought he wanted to hear how the work was going with, with Sega. And so he goes, no, I don't want to hear any of that. 
I go, okay. And he goes, he said, just start playing. And so I played a bunch of stuff and then I played that cue, but I played it in a much different way. You know, I just, I didn't play in a cartoonish way. I played it, just started playing, but it was the exact same chords, the exact same voicings, everything. It's an E flat and it's E flat to D flat add nine to F sharp to G to A flat. And that's the verse. And it does it four times and the voicings change the third cycle. So at any rate, um, I played that and he really liked it. And then I instinctively went to uh, E major seven chord to an A chord. And it's just basically uh, on the last chord, which is an A flat, two of the notes in an A flat triad, which are A flat and E flat, also are the major third and the major seventh of an E major seven chord. So it's a little trick that you do to change as few notes as possible to get as much psychological impact as possible. And I did it instinctively because because I did, you know, Stevie always told me to let the least amount of notes possible, you know, get the most emotional impact with the least notes. I did that and I played the chorus and the chorus I came up with spontaneously. So now we had the verse and the chorus and he goes, stop, that's it, that's it, that's it. And that's basically the song, that's Stranger in Moscow. And he wrote beautiful lyrics to it. And basically the melody for the most part is just the top notes of the chords I'm playing. And um, the verse was born from one of the very first cues I did for Sega, for Sonic the Hedgehog. And the song came together in that hour and a half that morning in Moscow. Yeah. But when, I mean, this is an interesting thing because when you look at the album credits, it specifically credits Michael Jackson as the producer. It was everything on the song. So, I mean, how do you feel about that years later? Terrible. I mean, but li- listen, listen, he, he, overall, if you look at it as a balance, right, you know, was life perfect with him? No. Right. But did he, was it mostly really great? Yeah. Do I love him to death? Yeah. Was he a perfect human being? No. Now, if I just had the knowledge to say right after we put together Stranger in Moscow, did I just write a song with you, Michael? He would have said yes. And I'm standing out of the doorway at noontime, an hour and a half after we started, thinking, I need to say something. Should I say, Michael, did we just write a song together? But he's so depressed, and it was so obvious that we just had, I didn't say anything. And that was my lack of experience. You know, I'm his musical director at that point, so I have a great gig with him. And, you know, how far do you want to you you want to be grateful for the the stuff you already got going on, and I just assumed that it was a non-issue. But so I didn't say anything, and I should have. And in retrospect, that's why when Billy Betrell said to me when we first did Heal the World, Billy immediately came in and said, "If you want writing credit on that, speak up now." You know, and so that's how stuff works. You know, if you do something with an artist like that, you need to say something at the time. You can't just let it go. And I just didn't know any better. I was just done. So. That's that's what happened with that. Now, on the history album, nobody got credit on playing parts. You know, there was I got lots of credit on the album, but it was nebulous. In other words, my name was on there, but it doesn't show what songs I played on. And that's the same for the other players, where the producers are attached to each song that they did. Well, with Stranger in Moscow, basically, Michael, I did all the tracks. I did the drums, I did the bass, I did the strings, I did the percussion from his beatbox. In the the very last days of production on that, Michael brought in Toto, the guys from Toto, and they did some wonderful things on that, right? 
They laid down a beautiful bass line. There was a, a sax lick in the chorus. Um, there's a guitar lick that was added to it. But basically, I did all the tracks. And if, if you, you know, like Joe Vogel wrote a book about Michael's music, the man and his music, I think. And, you know, Joe in the book analyzed and broke down who did what on this. And I did, a, I did all the tracks on Stranger in Moscow and I got no credit on it. And it's like, you know, I'm not going to cry about it. Or Life is full of injustices and you can't whine or cry about it. You just, you just kind of look at what the good things are. And there were so many good things with him. There were so many amazing things that he did for me. And then were, I had such a good time with him. And it's like, it's kind of like if you have a best friend and the best friend at one point in a relationship starts to look at your girlfriend too closely and the girlfriend gets distracted. Now you have problems with that. It's like, are, you can choose to like hate your best friend or you can kind of like just sort of let it pass and like see if there's no new problems like that. And if there are no new problems like that, you kind of just go on with things. And you don't, like I said, and I'll repeat it again, life is full of injustices and just get over it. It's not a big deal. I love Michael. You know, he's the best friend I've ever had in my life. And that's, he's God and I'm Brad. And I'm just so lucky to have just been around him. You know, it's like all good. It's all good. Is that just how the industry sort of operates and it's sort of, I guess, in a way, a natural way that the music is created and attributed and how things sometimes are so organic that they just happen that way? I think if you don't stand up and say, I did this, they may take that as weakness and just sort of absorb it as if they did it, right? And I was doing so many other things for him. It's like, do I really want to make an issue of Stranger in Moscow when you know, we're about to do like a world tour with history and I'm the musical director? No, of course not. And is it really that big of a deal in the long run? I'm not, no, not for me, it's not. It would have been great, but it just didn't happen. And so, so what? So what? It's like, it's more about the art of the song. The song is gorgeous. Yeah. And, and I, everyone knows what I did on that. I, th I think they do. Um, and I think that, and I'm fine with that. You know, and I adore him and love him. And, and there would be no stranger in Moscow without him, don't forget, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, anyway. Yeah, the way the way you spoke about the creation and the notes, I've got just a question about that. And I know we have a lot of listeners that are very musical people. <laughs> How sure. did Michael talk about music composition? Did he ask for a certain chord? Like, was he able to refer he to specific chords? No, no, but he was able to hear stuff in his head pretty well and so basically he'd sing a melody i remember when we were doing the demo for childhood right he had the complete melody where with other songs he didn't but you know like with hill world he did and with childhood he did and so i'm sitting there figuring out the chords and when i would land on the right chords he would say that's it and he always knew when that was it and so i just tried different things and when it was what he was hearing he would say that's what i'm hearing now with other songs that wasn't the case with other songs, just like Stranger in Moscow, I'd say, just play something, right? So I'd bring different things to different songs. I'd bring different things to the table on different songs. Sometimes he already had a full melody in mind. Sometimes he had nothing. So rather than him telling me what chords to play, like spelling them out, like singing each note of the chord, he never did that. He, he would just sing the melody and I'd, I'd have to kind of figure it out. And, and it was a very intuitive process. So because it was not hard for him to get a song out of us working together, he kept working with me. And uh, it just, it's one of those things where it just, 
there's such a chemistry with the way him and I worked together that it just worked and it worked for two decades like that, you know, where it's, like I said, the very best stuff to me, beautiful girl and in the back days of Gloucestershire were done at the very end. Yeah. And apart from being one of the most incredible vocalists that have ever lived, did you ever see Michael play any other instruments or try any other instruments in the studio? No, he didn't, he didn't play instruments. Believe me, trust me. I, I, uh, he didn't play the keyboard or the guitar or anything. You know, he's, he sang beautifully and he, is a great musician and he's great with percussion and he's great sitting behind the keyboard with me and tapping in parts or, you know, like the way a lot of the percussion was done, he would just beatbox and then I'd take the beatbox and chop it up and put it in a sampler and do drums around that. These would be his ideas, but I would execute the ideas in the most intuitive way. So he wouldn't have to say, okay, I want this beat there. He'd just like sing something. And if it was like, beatboxing like on stranger in moscow the whole drum track besides the 909 kick is him beatboxing and me chopping it up into tiny little slices and sequencing it on an mpc 60 back then and coming up with the drum track we worked with the emulator threes a lot he would hear a sound and he'd say now lay this out and so i'd take whatever sound it is and lay it out on the emulator now he'd have a whole keyboard of whatever sound it was that he wanted but by virtue of being a keyboard there you know each sample, even though it's the same sample, has different pitches as you go up the keyboard. And so we would make a lot of our own sounds that way. Very rarely did we go into stock drum libraries or anything like that. He was always saying, Brad, I want, you know, hurt me, he'd say. And he goes, we need something that the ear has never heard before. You know, so we were always coming up with our own sounds. I just love the idea that Michael's incredible beatboxing is there buried in, in the mixes uh, that you hear on those album versions. I, <laughs> I just can listen to him beatbox all day, pretty much. Do you, do you have recordings of him just even today, just beatboxing? Yeah. Yes, I do. I got tons wow. of samples. I got tons of stuff. When he did those vocal beatboxing tracks, it's, it's almost like there were <laughs> not just percussion, but also other instruments and, almost, and harmonies even coming out of him at the same time. It was yeah, well, if you, spectacular. Yeah, there's one phone call that he he's calling me and he's like beatboxing in the back and then he's also singing the bass line, right? And so he's doing everything at once. And it's kind of funny because I'm sure people have heard it. Not everyone's heard it, but it's interesting. It's how he works. He's a very intense guy and he goes, this is what I want, Brad. But, you know, and as he's beatboxing, he's, you know, he goes, I want the strings doing this. I want, you know. It wouldn't make any sense to most people, but if you know, it's like anything else. If you work with some guy for long enough, you kind of know what they're looking for. He he was musical genius, and he like on Billy Jean, which was before my time. You know, he came up with all the voicings in his head. At least the story has it, but I totally believe it came up with all the parts. I don't think that people were behind that even making the album. And it was Nelson, his driver, who said, "Michael, you got to put that song on the album." So he did, but. You know, so here's Michael doing Billy Jean all by himself and coming up with all the structures of it, all the, the voicings, things like that. So he would definitely have pretty completed ideas in his head. He did not play the instruments. Uh, I guess, again, we could really talk about the history album for weeks and months because <laughs> I love it. It's one of my favorites. It was the, the first year I became a fan during the Dangerous Era. Okay. And then the history era was, I guess, in a way – 
for some people, a comeback. And it was just absolutely triumphant. We got such an amazing album of some of his most personal and absolutely yeah. detailed and powerful music and songs and lyrics and just everything. The videos were amazing. Then we got a whole world tour, which I got to see twice. I saw Michael live on the history tour in Brisbane, Australia, okay. which is actually where Jamin is. And then in an indoor venue in Perth, Australia, it was a, a big sort of inflatable dome roof held up right. by air pressure. Yeah, I remember Perth. Perth is beautiful. Yeah. You did three shows in that venue in Perth, which was incredible. There you are. You're the musical director of the History Tour. You, you, yeah. You, so your relationship continued. Tell us a little bit about maybe some of the differences between the two <laughs> tours. Um, I think History was better in the sense that it had evolved. The sound of the band, the sophistication of what we were doing, it was polished and slick and elaborate and complicated and it was kind of running on eight cylinders everything's just working and very intense and it was just a, a lot of work and it was a, a lot of fun and i was so involved with everything with that where with dangerous the first leg of dangerous i'm not the musical director greg is so now it's the second leg of dangerous and i'm kind of everything's working and it's great but by the time we do it another complete album right and now we're doing another complete tour it's like i'm pretty comfortable at that point right and i'm doing the arrangements very easily and very every everything's working i think that the differences are is there was a, a level of sophistication a few marks higher on on uh, history than there was on dangerous it was michael at its peak I, I know that watching 97 in munich right and it's leaked on the internet where Bucharest was officially released, Munich wasn't. It just leaked. It's like watching that, you know, it's it was it's great. It just it's just wonderful seeing that and and remembering all that and how that went. You know, it's like you're right back there again. So talk to us about the tour from the point of view of a musical director. Like how hard is it to pull off a show like that in the moment? What sort of challenges have you got? It's first of all, doing the arrangements are easy. It was a perfect gig for me. It was never hard at all. It's just, everything worked. Doing the show itself was intense. I would go to each show at noon and play through the entire show by myself. I'd put on one pair of headphones for my rig, for the keyboards and the modules, and another pair of headphones over that for the, the show that we did the previous night. And I'd play through the entire show. I did this for every show. So the band would get there at six, and I'd get there at noon. And I did that because after I had done that, I was so ready to do the show that night. It was so easy for me to think outside the box and actually conduct the band and take it much further than just playing the parts. Right. And so, you know, it's completely warmed up that way. And I was comfortable. Michael loved that. Michael loved that I did that. And so even so doing those two hours and 20 minutes, it was like, you know, for me, the time he would jump out of the spaceship and I'm doing the sound effects as he's walking across the stage and I, I have a monitor in front of me and I have to follow his every move. And it was, to say it, was, it wasn't fun, it was too intense to be fun. It was like you were kind of just, I don't know how to put it. It was one of those things that had to be so exact and perfect that it wasn't fun. It was like, um, it was, and it wasn't hard. It was just in, totally intense. Does that make any sense how I'm talking about it? It was like, you're just so, it has to be so perfect and 
he's not going to settle for anything less and nothing can go wrong. And there's, there's so many cues and there's so many things that have to happen in sequence and everything has to work perfectly. So if a show goes perfectly, I don't hear anything from him. And if anything goes wrong, I hear from him in the morning. Like landing a plane. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. I think landing a plane's a lot easier. So, yeah. <laughs> um, he, wow. Yeah. So it was, it was like, like with Stevie, the gigs, you know, you do a gig and the gig would go great or sometimes it wouldn't or sometimes it's in between. And Stevie didn't even care. You know, it was like he wanted it to be good, but he was so much more laid back about it. And with Michael, it was like Michael, you know, you hear about him being a perfectionist and he really, really was. It really had to be perfect. So, you know, when you're sitting there in charge of the music for a show that size and it has to be perfect, it's so intense that it's not joyful it's just like you kind of go Phew, when the night's done and you can mm-hmm. relax a little bit and then while you're doing it of course there's you know while you're playing the songs it can be wonderful and when i would play the piano for she's out of my life and he's saying that was always nice or you know when we're doing this or that but for the most part it was too intense to be like joyful and like having a party with it it was uh, a lot of responsibility and it was that's the way it was so the tickets you know, there's 70,000 people out there each night and they're paying a lot of money for the tickets. And then the show's being recorded by three or four different sources. There can't be any mistakes. And so it was, it was like that. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I, I really want to try and get into Michael's mind here through your experiences like around this. Because when you watch the film, This Is It, I don't know if you've seen This Is It, the do- documentary. I have not, no. There's a moment in it where Michael is talking to Michael Bearden, who is the musical director of This Is It. And they're sort of having like a little argument, actually. Like Michael Bearden's playing The Way You Make Me Feel, but in a slightly different way than it's ever been done before. Michael's getting into it and jamming with it, but then sort of snaps at Michael Bearden and says, no, I don't want that. I want it to sound the way it's always sounded on the record. Right. So, did you ever have experiences like that where you wanted to get a bit more creative, but Michael? No, sort of, no, huh? and that's no, never. And that's the thing. Remember, I told you what David Williams said about me. He goes, "Brad gives the artists exactly what they want." No, I only wanted to give him what he wanted, and I knew what he wanted. He wanted it to sound like the record. That simple. No, and that's that's the reason we work together so well because I didn't ever need to make it anything other than that. Now, when you take a, it's not that simple. When you take a song like starting something and make it live you can't just take what's on the record and play those parts you have to embellish it or it falls flat on its face and so the difference between starting something live is there's all these extra keyboard licks if you listen to it right where on the record there's no keyboard licks it's just the chords going back and forth there's only two chords in the song so you have to embellish it and you'll have to do certain arrangements but as far as the feel of it you want the feel to translate just the way it was meant to translate on the record and I always knew that, and so I always made sure that that's what Michael got. I remember doing the arrangement for Blood on the Dance Floor. The first time Michael ever heard it, I knew he was going to flip. And he comes out on stage and he goes, this is vicious. He was just floored. And it's like, that's the way it should be for an artist. The music should just know what the artist is going to want and deliver. And so besides the arrangement on Blood on the Dance Floor being correct and knowing that he would like it, I also did other things like, I hit the side fills really hard so that I knew how, how we'd like to listen to stuff. It was like blistering loud. And I made sure the side fills hit him broadside, right? And I made sure that the impact of the music where he felt the kick and all those sorts of things, things that are really simple for me to 
instinctively do. There was never any anxiety about doing the arrangements or making it sonically sound like it needed to at all. Yeah. It was glorious. It was just wonderful. So the only anxiety would be doing the actual show where, you know, you're so involved in the moment, where, you know, would have been nice to appreciate it more without being so worried about what the next cue was going to be and if everything was going to work perfectly, you know, so. What was Michael's approach to constructing a live set list? Was there ever discussions or desire to play any deep cuts versus the hits? He just kind of knew what he wanted. I mean, I don't know if Kenny Ortega ever had conversations with him about it. I'm sure they did. Maybe they worked on the set list together. But in the end, I think it was what he would always want. As far as me, I never talked to him about it one way or the other. We knew what songs we were going to do, and that was basically coming from what he wanted, and that was how it worked. And nobody ever had a problem with it. It was all, you know, it was all good. It all made sense to everybody. It was a good sampling across the board of everything he had done. Well, I sure enjoyed those two shows that I saw. They were That's incredible. They were so, and you mentioned that, um, was it the Munich concert you mentioned that has leaked? I, I watched it recently. It was, yeah, it's just spectacular to watch. It I is because it. it's like he's the greatest artist of all time. Nobody's ever performed like that ever. And I don't believe anyone ever will. I mean, nobody. If you just look at the, the Thriller video, you look at Billie Jean, or you did, nobody has that talent. Nobody's ever had that talent. And what you're seeing in Munich is you're seeing that talent live. You're seeing the actual guy doing the actual performances, and it's it's stunning. And uh, there's nothing else like it. So it's just it's just the most wonderful footage. It's just because it's real. It's what we would do each night. You know, it's what he would do each night. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. I'll never forget the atmosphere. Was just thick through the arena. I saw it was just. You could slice through the electricity in the air. You could slice through the love in the air that he was just emanating and then th that he was receiving. I'll never forget that. Uh, my dad actually walked into the back of the arena near the end of the show and security said, oh, you just can't come past this point. But he, he could actually see the stage from where he was waiting to pick me up from. And he okay. saw the last few tracks. And then somehow when the show ended – and I walked out of the arena, I went to where he was going to meet me. And I just gave him the biggest hug because of the emotions that I was feeling from seeing that show. It was such an incredible atmosphere. I'll never forget well, that. I, I think that the thing that sets it apart from everything else is that to this day, can you think of an artist who's ever danced like that or ever performed like that ever? And the answer is no. There's not anybody who's ever done what he's done as well ever and it's like that's almost not even my opinion that's just what it is it's like I, there's nobody else you anybody could say well this person may have danced as well as michael or performed as well as michael it's like no there's not even a close second and there's been great people but so you're dealing with the greatest of all time and that's that's something and that's that's huge there's, that's in its own world you know it's 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 magical it's amazing and he was absolutely spectacular as far as his natural talent. I remember up at the ranch, I'd be having breakfast. I'd go into the, I'd stay in the bungalows, but I'd come into the main house to get the Michael Jackson breakfast, which was like turkey bacon and scrambled eggs. And we call it the Michael Jackson breakfast because that's what he liked. And I remember him walking in from his room and he'd be in pajamas 
barefoot with a black hat on. And he just looked like the most amazing natural star you've ever seen in your life without trying, without trying to do anything, you know, in his pajamas. And just like, I mean, just a born star, a born perfect showman, you know, just stunning. He's just the, the most amazing person I've ever met in my life. At that point in his career, I guess it's been going for decades and decades already. Was he really trying to protect his voice at those shows so that no. later on he could have the full use of his voice for recording actual album tracks no, in the future? He, he always was careful. Like He'd always work out with Seth Riggs. His vocal coach, Seth, is a very famous vocal guy. And he'd drink hot water and lemon, um, at least when we were in the studio. I don't know if he was doing that on tour. But Seth would be on tour with us sometimes. And he would work out with Seth. So I guess he was concerned about warming up and sounding his best. But he didn't necessarily protect his voice, nor did he protect his ears. When we were in the studio, I've never seen anyone listen to tracks louder than him, ever. It was to the point where you couldn't even be in the room sometimes. And I listen to stuff that's loud. And I know Billy Betrell would sometimes either walk out of the room. If I'm getting this right, I, I, there's been so much. I, I know that people couldn't be in the same room listening at the volume levels he would want to listen to. As far as do you have hearing damage from that? Well, it's physically impossible not to. You know, but he always claimed, you know, my hearing's perfect. Well, I'm sure if you're tested, it's not going to be perfect. <laughs> but, you know, it's impossible that you lose the higher frequencies when you listen at sound pressure levels like that. So, um in his brain, he's so sensitive that I could be on the phone with him playing string parts over the phone from my house and he could hear what I was doing very easily. And, and it wasn't like I was seeing him not be able to hear things. But one thing that did happen is on some of the tracks, the percussion is so loud and out front. And, you know, he always wanted it to hurt, you know, hurt me, hurt me, you know, sounds that hurt you. But I also think that maybe they were louder than they would have been, except for maybe because of some hearing loss, which is impossible not to have happened. Listening at the way he, you know, any anybody who worked with Michael and was close to Michael will tell you the same thing, how loud he listened to stuff. I guess, you know, the history tour, I, you couldn't really call it a small tour. It went for quite a long time. It went to a lot yeah. of places. Were there any highlights from, I guess, the history tour or the history era that stand out to you as well? I mean, at that point, we had done so many shows. You remember certain things, like playing Wembley, and there's Prince Charles. You remember different things about different shows. Hong Kong was amazing. Like Perth, I love Perth. As far as highlights within the shows themselves, they were so geared towards being the same, right? That besides the tracks evolving, like Earth Song kept getting better and better, and you know, we kept adding little things to it. And you know, you kind of, you don't just want to sit there with the arrangement. You want to keep making it better and better. And so that's what I was doing, and that's what I was doing with the band through the whole tour. But as far as like individual highlights, there's not individual highlights. There's just a richness of, of doing it in the first place, of seeing the world, being on stage with him, just the whole experience, you know, just amazing. Like from my vantage point of seeing what it, you know, 80 to 100,000 people look like out in front of you, and he's right there in front of you. And it's just, I think it's less individual highlights and just more of a just kind of a dreamlike situation where it's not so much that you feel like you're dreaming. It's just when you look back at it, as I'm looking back on it now, it seems like it's a little bit beautifully fulfilling and rich and concentrated and 
difficult at times with the stress levels involved and just meaningful, you know, just meaning, very meaningful. And those would be the highlights for me is I know that sounds campy and light and I don't mean it to, but those, those are the highlights for me is just working with them through all those shows and the ups and downs. And, you know, that I think a lot of the highlights for me were when we weren't even on tour, we'd be in the studio together, just, you know, coming up with tracks and stuff and the joy that, that we had doing that. That would, that was amazing. Towards the end of the 90s, uh, there were some really unique charity shows that happened in, in um, Germany and Korea, uh, Michael Jackson and Friends, which were awesome. To, to They're still great to watch. I, I really love them. There is a, a really interesting arrangement of the song Dangerous in those shows. Rumor has it that that sort of arrangement, which has a com- completely different sound to the album, stems from the work that was being done on the HBO special that was in the mid-90s. Were you involved in, in that arrangement and those shows as well? I was involved with all that. In fact, the first iteration of Dangerous was we, we put a bunch of James Bond samples in it, those horns. And Michael and me and Lavelle and Travis, uh, Lavelle Smith and Travis Payne were his choreographers. There's been a dozen different arrangements of Dangerous, and there's a lot of similar elements to them. Most of the arrangements don't sound much of anything like the original song, right? But it was just, that was the song he used to experiment with doing really interesting dance stuff with and interesting sounds and things like that. And I was involved with all those arrangements for Dangerous. Yeah. I adore all of the Dangerous tracks. I love the album version. (laughs) I love, you know, the live performances. And yeah, that, that MJ and Friends arrangement, I love it was, and we had the worst VHS sort of quality that we used to trade as fans back then as well. The sound was horrendous. It was so well, bad. We loved the way still. the way that those the way that the dangerous arrangements evolved is, I would sit there with Lavelle and Travis at a keyboard with the emulators and with Pro Tools, and they'd have ideas. Right? They'd say, "Okay, Brad, we want to hit here, or we want Twilight Zone music here, or we want this or that." And then Michael would sit with me in the same thing, and so. The tracks were built from the dancers, from the choreography and from stuff that Michael was hearing. I would put the arrangement together, but it was completely based on what the dancing was going on and what they wanted, right? And so it was a wonderful collaboration. It wasn't like me just doing the arrangement. It was like me sitting with Lavelle and Travis and sitting with Michael and going to the dance rehearsals and taking manuscript paper and marching, you know, marking where the, they were leaning on the beat and where the hits were and where the accents were and stuff like that. That's how the dangerous arrangements evolved. The way she came into the place I knew right then and there. There was something different about this girl. The way she moved, her hair, her face, her lines, divinity in motion. She stopped the room. I could feel the aura of her presence. Every head turned, feeling passion and lust. The girl was persuasive. The girl I could not trust. The girl was bad. The girl was dangerous.
girl was dangerous. Hey, MJCast, it's Tosh Jackson here, and I just wanted to thank you for everything you've done for me and my family, my uncle, and his legacy. I also wanted to congratulate you on 100 incredible episodes. I can't wait to listen to more. Hi, this is Stephen from MJ Fans for Charity. Congratulations to Team The MJ Cast for reaching our epic 100th episode milestone. I joined the team as charity correspondent way, way back 25 episodes ago in episode 75. I honestly didn't know what I was getting myself in for, We have seen MJFFC member numbers grow from around 45 to now almost 70. It is making a massive, massive difference. Well done to the whole team, and here is to the next 100 episodes. Hey everybody, Vincent Patterson here. I had the great joy of directing and choreographing our beloved Michael Jackson. I want to wish the MJ cast a monster congratulations for reaching over 100 shows. Whatever your next goal is, I know you can make it. Again, congratulations from me and keep on doing what you're doing. Thanks, guys. Hi, this is James Allais. 100 episodes. Incredible. 
Congratulations to the MJ cast. Hey, this is Joe Vogel, author of Man in the Music, the creative life and work of Michael Jackson. Congratulations to the MJ cast on 100 episodes. Hi, this is Jason. Ale and Sandra. We are MJ Radio, sister Spanish podcast to the MJ cast, congratulating you on this magnificent achievement. It's not easy to produce one single episode, let alone a hundred high quality shows with excellent high profile guests. We appreciate all the hard work you guys do. We are thankful for the opportunity you gave us to start our podcast by bringing us together the same way you bring many people together with your show. We are proud to have been a part of your vision and to have helped serve as historical precedents to preserve and spread Michael Jackson's legacy to the world. Cheers to 100 more shows. Felicidades. Keep Michaeling. Viva Michael. Hi guys, Paul DeWire here, author of the book Humanitarian The Real Michael Jackson. I just wanted to congratulate Jamin, Q and Elise of the MJ cast on 100 shows. Well done guys, you do an amazing job and all of us in the MJ fam are so appreciative of all you do. Well done. Hello, this is Laval Smith Jr., Michael Jackson, choreographer for over 23 years. I want to congratulate MJ cast on their 100th episode. I wish you 100 more. You guys are amazing. Keep it going. Stay strong. This is John from John Cameron's Musicology, wishing the MJ cast a well-deserved congratulations on 100 episodes. The wealth of knowledge you guys have published has been essential to continuing Michael's legacy. This is Tommy O, Michael Jackson's guitarist from This Is It. I want to congratulate the MJ cast for their 100th episode and keep Michael Jackson's legacy alive. Hi, this is Bresh Najar, author of Let's Make History. Congratulations to the MJ cast on reaching a one and eight shows. Please keep my calling, guys, and thank you so much. Bye-bye. We also did Blood on the Dance Floor, right? Oh, uh, you so, know, again, let's go to morphine because, well, oh here's God. the thing. So we went to Montreux and it's just me, Michael, Matt Carpenter and Matt Forger. And Bruce wasn't working with Michael at the time. So we used Mick Azowski. and Mick Azowski is one of the most brilliant engineers on the planet. And Michael used to call him hot wings. It's a long story. At any rate, <laughs> we're out in Montreux, and I remember the first time Michael met Mick and Mick, you know, Mick's a big guy and he was wearing casual clothes, and I'm not sure Michael knew what to think when he first saw Mick, but when he started hearing what Mick could do, it, it's, you know, Mick is a genius. And I think Bruce is probably the best engineer in the world, and Mick might be the second the best. So at any rate, Matt Carpenter's running Pro Tools. I'm the music guy. Matt Forger's doing a bunch of stuff, assisting in with the engineering, stuff like that. Mick's the main engineer, and we did the album. And the album, had, you know, like with Morphine, I remember Michael says, come up with a piano part. Imagine we're in an operating room, right? And he says, come up with a classical piano part. So I came up with a classical piano part, which is really easy to do. It's a simple part. Michael loved it. And basically, Michael's singing about Demerol, right? And like almost a love song to Demerol. And I didn't know what to make of it. And I didn't really care because Michael was alert and functioning beautifully and clear and there was no problems. So, you know, just figuring it's one of his things you know the lyrics and morphine so at any rate blood on the dance floor with which was the main track which was a teddy riley track but there was no multi-track of it so we only had a dat and so we go out to mantra with a dat and then mick and i 
need to make a record out of this. So I had to replay every single part onto a multi-track based on what was on a DAT. And, you know, in certain parts of the song, you can sample the bass and then you just replay the bass part. So that's how we can do the bass. In other parts of the song, you can't, you know, it's hard to separate parts on a two track, right? Because it's all mixed together. So for the most part, we just had to re completely recreate it, which we did very well. And Michael was completely satisfied with. Yeah, so we did Blood on the Dance Floor. And then after that, I think we went back to the history tour. I'm tr trying to think of the timeline. I think we did that sometime in the middle of the history tour. Like part one of the history tour and maybe went to Montreux and worked on Blood on the Dance Floor. And then came back and finished history. If I'm getting this right, I could be wrong. Blood on the Dance Floor was not a typical Michael album. Dangerous took years. History took years. Invincible took years. Blood on the Dance Floor didn't take years. You know, just had a few new tracks and, and that was it. And then when you talk about Invincible, that was the point in time where Bruce and myself and Michael, that was the closest we had ever been on a project. We became three best friends on that project. We couldn't be, it was the, that was the highlight for me working on Invincible. On Invincible, Michael, unlike other albums, barely wrote any of the tracks. He wrote Speechless and he wrote The Lost Children. And both tracks, the critics didn't like. And so I worked with them on those tracks and then other people were doing different things. And uh, then Invincible was done, but Michael was much less hands-on with Invincible. And we did Invincible, most of it at Criterion Studios, uh, Eddie Germano's studio in, in Miami. We stayed at the Sheridan Bell Harbor and I had a suite. I had one room where I slept and another room where the gear was set up and then Bruce was right next to me. And then... During the day, we'd go to the studio or I'd work on stuff at all the gear I had in the hotel, in the suites. And it was a, a wonderful, wonderful project. It was not a normal project. Michael was in a much darker mode then, and I'm not sure what was going on. It, it was much darker. He was nice and sweet, but he was just like, sometimes we'd have meetings. I remember one meeting with me, Rodney Jerkins and Teddy Riley, and he was just kind of making sure that all three of us realized how serious he is about how we're doing and how happy he is with us but how intense he is and his eyes were almost closed shut and it's like i've never seen him look icier in my life and it was that was trippy you know it's like uh the way he looks in the video of blood on the dance floor which he hated but i loved and if you look at his eyes he looks so cool you know they're almost shut and it's like he just looks incredibly cool right and do you guys are you familiar with that video yeah, oh absolutely. my god, yes. One yeah, of my you know favorite he, looks. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's amazing how dark yeah. he looks. Well, that's so how cool. he was looking. Yeah. And he hated it. And I go, what what is wrong with you? I go, that's the I've never seen you look better. You know, he he looked but there's darkness there, you know, and a lot of times darkness is what makes someone look cool. Kurt Cobain wouldn't have been as cool if he didn't have darkness. You know what I'm saying? So when we're doing the Invincible album, he wasn't near as hands-on as he had been in Dangerous or History or Blood on the Dance Floor. And it's just what it was. So, you know, I'm not sure exactly why, but that's the, that's the way it was. And uh, we got done with that and there was not going to be a tour. We went back and kept doing music and we did the one-offs. We did the thing in 2001 for Heal the World or something, What More Can I Give? And I forget, I don't know. And then we did something, a one-off at the Democratic National Fundraiser in 2003. President Clinton was in the front row at the Apollo. And it was just me, Michael, and Slash and the dancers. And we only played the last 15 minutes of the show, but we headlined the show. 
and that was great. For the most part, during those years, we were just doing music up at the ranch or, or wherever. And like I said, the, the music had never been better. So um, in the back is still one of my, you know, I've already, I don't want to keep mentioning how great I st- thought the latest last tracks were that we did, but they, they were just beautiful, you know, just great. <laughs> we love them too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a question that I just thought of, I guess, comparing, say, tracks like Is This Scary and then Speechless or even something like Childhood from a bit earlier. Which sort of song would excite you or scare you the most when you look at it? Because some seem quite simple and pure, and then something else has so many different elements that have to be put together to create this intricate lace work almost. What sort of got your juices going? If the song was beautiful, like a childhood is beautiful, you know, so that, you know, I'm never scared of how hard a song is or intricate or, you know, None of it's hard. It's just music, right? But um, and then playing with Stevie for all those years, that that stuff was a lot more difficult than Michael's music. But I would say if the song was beautiful, it was wonderful to work on. And if it wasn't, I'm not going to say I loved everything. I, I you know the Lost Children. I did the arrangement on it. I don't even like it. You know, it's weird to me. I don't get it. Um, it's not something that. It's not a stranger in Moscow, but then again, my input was completely different on Stranger in Moscow. I'm coming up with stuff there. And with For Lost Children, he already had all the ideas in mind, and I just sort of executed it for him, right? So on songs that I really like, like Heal the World, I'm not crazy about. It's okay. It doesn't really, you know, it's not a Billie Jean type of song to me. It's not Stranger. It's not Days of Gloucestershire. It's not, you know, there's wonderful, wonderful songs. But like with any artist, there's songs that to me aren't that great. And so I would say working, it's not a matter of if you're scared of a song or if you're, you know, it's more a matter, does the song generate its own emotional energy by being great? And if the song does that, it just puts itself together. And if the song doesn't do that, you know, you're kind of, you're going, you know, you're doing stuff that he wants, right? But you're not, you know, even, even speechless, it's like, it's okay. It's like. It's not my cup of tea. Where I there's was so many other just gonna ask about that. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, you know, soft. I guess I don't know. I, I, it's I like darker stuff than that, you know. But that's just me. Did you see Michael becoming a father affecting him much in terms of his output or even content? I, I he was the best father I've ever seen. I, I've never seen a father better with kids with his own kids. His kids adored him. I mean, Paris would be holding one leg and Prince would be on the other leg, not letting him go to work, right? And he, I think if anything, the kids gave him inspiration to work. They absolutely did not slow him down a bit. And we'd be working on music and Blanket would be in the back of the room playing with his toys and making noise. And, you know, we just go about our business and there's Blanket, right? And it was just the kids were, were always there and the kids were just part of the beautiful vibe and the, the the picture of life back then you know there weren't a lot of people around you know uh, it was uh they'd be getting homeschooled and food would be brought in and him would be working and i don't know it, michael never had a, a, a big social thing going on so in answer to the question how did the kids affect his music i would say the kids gave him life and he loved them more than anything on the planet and 
you know, it, like I said, I'll say this for the record. He is the best father I've ever seen in my life ever. Yep. Period. End of story. And as the album progressed, the Invincible album, you can obviously it was started in the very late 90s. And I think there was like an, an original release date of something like really late 99. But the album kept being pushed back. And the longer it kept being pushed back, the more influence was coming in from Rodney Jerkins and the more it was sounding like those songs. Do you recall conversations in the late 90s in 98, 99 with Michael about what his original vision was for Invincible? No. Nope. There was never a vision for any of the albums. No, it was nothing ever heavy like that. Not that that's heavy, but most, that's a great question. You know, most of the time you would think an artist would have a vision like they want to do this type of concept album or they want to do this type of, it was never like that with Michael. It was just about the songs. Yeah. It was just about putting, you know, the songs and then everything's generated from the songs. Now with Invincible, Michael was so much less hands-on with the songs than he had been. And so whatever that was about, you know, it was nothing like history where he was there every day working on parts with me and stuff like that. It was not like that in, in Invincible. So for whatever reason, now I'm closer to Bruce and Michael than I've ever been on any album project. And I don't know what that was about. So it's just weird how dynamics work. You know, it's, it's just strange how, how things work. When you saw the final track list of the album come out, like for me, Invincible is such a, a sort of a strange album in a way because a lot of the songs that didn't make it onto the album, I feel are stronger contenders than some of the ones that are, are on there and they're completed. Like, for example, the song We've Had Enough, which is one of my absolute favorite Michael Jackson songs. There's, I don't, I just don't know. Like when you saw that final track list of the album, what, what, what did you think? Nothing. I, I was so tired at that point from working on everything when we weren't working on album tracks we were working on other stuff uh doing other music i was just, i didn't care at that point it's just what you know it's like you're i don't know how else to put it you're kind of like um it's you know it's it's okay this is what he wants you know it's like fine i didn't have a thought about it whatsoever i guess it's because i'm always doing other stuff with them i'm always working on other songs with them and i just didn't care you know, if this is what the Invincible album's supposed to be, great. And I'm working on a, a half a dozen other tracks with them that I do love, you know. So that's where my, my head's at, at. Not as far as like, well, strategically, what's the best way to be as successful as possible with Invincible? I just didn't want, I wasn't thinking like that. I'm not sure why. You know, it's just more in the moment of developing tracks with Michael. And that's what I was doing. And so that's the headspace there. You've mentioned a number of times you were developing different tracks just in the background all the time and working at Neverland. What was the sort of studio set up at Neverland? And I love there, there the story. A, oh, really? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. No, go finish your question though. I'm sorry. Oh, well, yeah, it was going to be about what were you working in at Neverland? And then I loved the story you told about the Michael Jackson breakfast with the bacon and the <laughs> scrambled eggs. Um, and the maple syrup. And the maple, toast, you got yeah. to have maple syrup. Got to have yep. maple syrup. <laughs> so other than the technical side and where you were working at Neverland, what was your personal experience of the place of Neverland? Well, f first of all, there's two parts of the question. What where did we work at Neverland? We worked in the dance studio. There was no studio. And I think that that was great. We used what's called a hotel room system, an HRS system, which is basically a bunch of racks that when I was on tour with them, Michael liked to work with music with me on tour. So 
they put together an HRS system for me, which is a portable recording rig with keyboards and modules, right? And it would be delivered to my hotel room. So when we were up at his dance studio, the HRS system would go to the dance studio. And it's a, it was an elaborate Pro Tools rig with lots of drum machines and keyboards. The stuff that we would do would go straight to the records. It would Bruce would step on it in the studio, meaning he'd go through the big console, and Bruce would make it glorious the way, way only Bruce could. But basically, we'd do the tracks a lot of the tracks in the dance studio, recording his vocal in the bathroom. The miking situation, Bruce had me use an M149 and an E1073 and a 1176 compressor. And Bruce told me exactly how he wanted the vocal chain to be to record the vocal being done very orderly and correct. But a lot of times you can get a really good vocal sound in really strange environments. And we recorded the vocal in the dance studio in the bathroom. So Mike would be in the bathroom and there'd be all these cables strung and I'd be at the other end of the dance studio and have headphones on so there wouldn't be leakage. But we didn't have a big mixing console there. And it was wonderful because if you can make a song sound really good on portable equipment, which we did, like The Loser is one of those songs, it sounds great and it never went through a real console, that, then you know you got something. You know, if, if you're in a great big expensive studio, a lot of stuff will sound good, but you may not have anything. So we almost purposely, I never once told him, Michael, we need a real mixing board in here. Not once. And it was wonderful working up at the ranch. And Michael Prince would be there sometimes with me. Sometimes he wouldn't. A lot of times it would be just me and Michael. And we'd put together tracks and that was what it was like working up there. So when we weren't working, I used to have a dirt bike, a motorcycle. I'd ride up and down the ranch. I'd ride on rocks and circle the bungalows, and it would scare Michael to death. And um, kind of, I kind of just had free run of the place, and there was almost nobody around. And it was very stark. It was like he'd have, you know, sometimes there'd be people up there, but for the most part, it, there, it was very, you know, there were maids and there was the cooks and there was things like that. But it was like. Michael Prince and me would be up in the dance studio. We'd order anything we could think of from the kitchen. They'd bring it to us. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful way to work. And it was a blast. And that's what it was like working up there. As far as what was the ranch like, the ranch is 2,700 acres. And there's a mountain on the property. But of that, not all of it's cultivated, manicured with landscaping. You, that would be crazy, right? But what was manicured and cultivated, you, do, you drive through the gate. And Curtis or Violet would let you in. And they were security people and two of the security people. And you drive for another mile or so, or however, it's hard for me to know. And then you'd be at the main house. There'd be a swimming pool outside of the main house. There'd be further up. There'd be the amusement park. Further past that, there'd be the Western Zoo with the reptiles. And then further up from there, there'd be the lions and giraffes and elephants and stuff like that. Then... Between the house and the zoo, it was about a quarter mile where the amusement park was, and it was beautiful green grass and just glorious. Yeah, I, I know that the, one of my favorite buildings on property was the train station, and it was just gorgeous. It was as beautiful as it looks in the pictures, and Al was the guy who ran the train, and it was a full-size train, but it didn't really do much. It went from the train station. Uh, it didn't even circle back. It, it kind of went from one part of the ranch to the other and then had to back up to get it to its starting point. Then there was a smaller train in the amusement park and then you'd see animal handlers. Like sometimes they'd be walking chimps or llamas 
And so you'd be walking to the arcade from the main house or walking to the dance studio or driving from the main house to the dance studio and you'd see the handlers with the animals just walking on the lawn. It was kind of a surreal situation. There were lots of cows, there'd be deer. In the reptile part of it, it was like 110 degrees in that place and it was disgusting. It was like bugs that you'd never want to see or tarantulas and snakes and I, I didn't like it in there. It, it, it would scare the crap out of you. And But yeah, he had a reptile house, right? <laughs> and uh, I guess it has to be kept really hot. And the western part of the zoo, there were statues of cowboys on horses and very western. The theme was very western. And then he had, he, Michael loved trains. So in one of his office rooms, he had just the most amazing train set you've ever seen. You know, just really, really amazing stuff. So that was what the ranch was like. It was just a magical place. The arcade room, you'd walk in and there'd be, all the machines would be turned off and you'd turn on one switch on the wall and 200 video games would instantly come on and c- come to life. And he had all the latest stuff and it was, it was a lot of fun, you know. You play the video games and, and just kind of have the, have the run of the place. So it was great. We heard um, from a few people that Michael worked on music as a distraction during the 2005 trial, and that was the mid-2000s. You did a lot of creative stuff with Michael. Were you also working with him during that time? The trial started, I think, January 31st, if I'm getting this right, 2005. We worked up until December, and in December, we stopped working. We did a Geraldo Rivera special up at my house. So when you see that online, I don't know if you've seen it, that's at my house. Well, and, I did not know that. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really and cool, so we did that just before the trial. And during the trial, I don't think he was doing much music. I came up a couple times, but it was, you know, those four months or five months from February, March, April, May, it was either done May 13th or June 13th. I forget what the month was, but it's four or five months. And during that time, you know, he, he wasn't doing much music. He was, you know, losing weight, not eating. I think he got down to 102 pounds. Very dark time. Very scary time, as you can imagine. Yeah. yeah. So, Brad, I, I really want to get into some of these final songs you guys worked on. I mean, one of the, the highlight moments for me on, on listening to the Ultimate Collection for the first time was hearing in the back. Uh, and I read your 2009 interview with Black or White magazine where you said that there's actually a range of parts that the public still haven't heard that you recorded for that song. Uh, talk to us about the evolution of In the Back. Michael Boddicker started that with him with the bass line, right? It's just three notes that repeat over and over. And then... Then I took over and worked on it for a few years with them. And we did all the percussion to it, added the harps. Uh, those are real harps, added the horns. Those are real horns. And it's while the mix of it, you can't hear the vocal very well, right? The mix could be better. The, the track is just spectacular. And it's one of the coolest things that I've ever heard him do. And that track is just me and him, where he wrote it, but I'm doing every single part with him. And... As far as parts go, that we worked on that track for years. Sony needed to release something. The Ultimate Collection legally needed to be released. And so three new songs were added. And like I said, it was The Way You Love Me, which I did with Michael in the back, which I did with Michael and Beautiful Girl. Those were the three tracks. And I think all, I think all three songs are great. I love Beautiful Girl and I love In the Back. You know, around that same time, we're doing Days of Gloucestershire, which 
It's not Gloucester, sorry, isn't it Gloucester? Gloucester. So Michael. Yeah. Gloucester. Yeah, he, he pronounced it wrong. <laughs> and it's so funny because one of the lyrics is North Virginia, and there is no such thing as North Virginia. So he was <laughs> as sophisticated as he was with theater and the arts and fashion and dancing. You know, he was such a innocent kind of guy with so many things, right? And it was just it was just funny. It was like there were so many things he knew about and there were so many things he didn't know about. You know, I'd say he knew more than he didn't know, you know, <laughs> incredible, spectacularly talented guy. But thank God there was some humanity there, too. You know, where, where you know, there is some innocence to the, the creative process. The lyrics aren't always correct with pronunciations or that, you know, days of Gloucestershire. That's what we call it. That's what he always called it. I've lost count of the amount of times you've mentioned that that demo, that track. Go into it as much as you want. You seem, um, you seem to have a really soft spot for that. Yeah, and, also, he, and also beautiful yeah. girl. David Clark he was writing about, I'm not going to go into what the story was, but he was writing about what was going on in my life. And when I heard the lyrics, I went back to L.A. for two days because I had to do some things. So Michael Prince went up and recorded the vocals. And when I came back up and heard it, I, I don't think I ever cried harder. And I, I don't ever, when have I ever cried about a song ever? And I was just, I've never cried harder. And I'm, talking to him on the phone and we're both up at the ranch, but I'm on the phone with him. Right. And I'll never forget that. And that song's based on me. And I'm not going to go into that story. Um, I will at some other time. I'm not going to do it now, but that's very, that, that song was written about what was going on in my life then. And another song he wrote about my life. He wrote two songs about my life were the loser where I'm in a hotel room in Las Vegas and it's 2003 and I'm feeling bad about, Again, I'm not going to go into that story, but I'm calling myself a loser. I'm going, I am such a loser. He heard it through the hotel walls and came up with the lyrics for that. And I thought that was pretty hysterical. But where the loser was me just, you know, having a, a bad day and saying, I'm such a loser, you know, that's this or that. And saying it loudly, loud enough to where he could hear it outside of the room. Days of Gloucestershire was really intense. You know, and it was just a demo. It's never been finished, but it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous track. The most basic demo. You know, not the lyrics aren't finished, the, but the, the melody is just incredible. And uh, uh, yeah, very, very close to my heart. So, yeah. Hollywood Tonight is another song that's one of my absolute favorites. And uh, it's. Oh, thank you. It's it's absolutely brilliant, and the, what sort of guts me a little bit. I don't know how you feel about this, but the the version that we got on the Michael album, the Teddy Riley produced version, and I know you know Teddy's a great producer, but it's the it's the you know the one that leaked that excites me more than ever. <laughs> yeah, well, that you know why is because the versions that may have leaked were were just the versions that him and I worked on. So you're hearing pure Michael craftsmanship. In other words, any track that's just me and him means he's going to approve every single thing that I do. And then he's totally hands-on with the parts. He's coming up with percussion parts. He's playing percussion parts. I'm playing parts, but he's making sure it's what he wants. You know, So you're hearing the ultimate Michael production chops and craftsmanship. And so that's why when you hear those a demo that's leaked like that, you're hearing pure Michael. And the reason you like it is because you, you love what Michael does. And Teddy's a great producer, but... Michael wasn't around to approve that, right? So I'm not saying Michael wouldn't have. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go one way or the other on that. But what I'm trying to say is I think what you're hearing 
some of the unfinished stuff that was leaked is you're hearing raw Michael Jackson. And, and that's, and that's, that's huge. That's the real deal thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the version that did leak has a lot of parts in it that aren't on the final version. There was lyrics removed from it. Um, all kinds of different things went on with the bridge section. For example, do you, do you recall if that song was worked on even further than the one that has leaked? Is there part, is there versions with Michael singing the bridge? I don't know. I mean, when when the stuff was originally released, and I think Terrell Jackson's rapping on it or something, or yeah, and then they released a different version without so much of the the rapping part, the Hollywood where Terrell or you know some of the properly released versions changed, right, from the original album version to subsequent versions, which are striped with the video, which have less length and don't have some of the the parts. As far as what was originally done, it's just F to A minor, and I'm just playing keyboards, and and I don't know what he was doing. I, I can't remember. I'd have to hear it. I got all the, I got, I got it all. I just haven't heard it for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much more we could go into. It would blow your mind uh, as far as the tracks and there's a, a you know, there's. <laughs> You can blow our mind if you want. Yeah, well. (laughs) Well, some of those songs you mentioned at the start of the chat, like, I mean, I wrote those down, and some of those ones are ones that people have never heard the name of before. You talked about Rich Girl, Adore You, Jungle, Photographs, Colorblind, and Rich Girl are the songs that I don't think people know about. The thing is, is this. I'm never going to release anything unless the estate approves it, and I'll always work with the estate, and that's, the way Michael Prince and I work, we work with the estate and, you know, that's how it is. And so nothing will get released without their blessing. And if there's a point in time where some of that's where they say, great, let's, let's work on it and release then great. And if there's not, then it won't get released. But yeah, there's a bunch of unreleased stuff. Yeah. So exciting. <laughs> how does it make you feel when some stuff does get leaked? You know what? I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't care. I don't. I, I'm busy with my own life. I don't. People get all wrapped up in stuff, and yeah, I don't care one way or the other. I mean, I'm not interested in in the whole game of it. I'm not interested. I'm a very private person, and I don't do Facebook. I don't post online. I barely even do interviews. And the reason I'm doing interviews with you guys is because I've heard such great things about you. Those things were right. You guys are wonderful. You guys have just been wonderful, wonderful people oh, thank um, you. to work with. I mean that. There's no way I can I can say that if I don't mean it. And as yeah, as far as if stuff gets leaked, I mean I don't know. It's, it gets leaked. It's like it, I don't think about it one way or the other. Okay. I, I just don't. I'm just not concerned with it. I, I have you know other things I'm doing with my life, and it just kind of you know it's kind of like that. Well, like, for example, like Gloucestershire, are you happy that at least we get to hear that beautiful demo, even in the incomplete un- state? Are you, are you happy that happy we get about to? It? I'm, I, when I hear it, it brings back such a, a time for me. You know, um, that's all I know as far as like, you know, I think it's gorgeous. And I think it was, even though it's so basic and unfinished, it's just how glorious it was working with him and how great I believe the stuff was that we were doing, you know, it's just beautiful. It just, it, 
I keep saying that emotional energy thing when a song generates its own emotional energy, meaning when you listen to it, and it's like, oh, my God, I love that. You know, that's what Val Kestershire is to me. That's what it does. So it's like that's as far as it being leaked. I don't think about it one way or the other. It's like I don't I don't care one way or the other. I just I know that the art has been built and that's all I yeah. care about as far as exploiting that art. I'm not I could care less about it one way or the other. You know, it's not that I don't want people to hear it. It's just it's just that it's not me. I don't have it's not my place to I'm not trying to I don't care if anything gets ever gets out or not. I'm just glad I was able to do the work with them and the work is there. And if if the powers that be ever wanted to get out, then great. That's fantastic. And if they don't, then great. I'm I'm OK with it, too. You know, so I mean, there's already a ton of stuff out there that he's done. that's out there. That's great. So it's like. Sometimes it's good to have stuff that, some you know, not to expose everything, to have some little gems that are hidden, right? Mystery. So Got to have yeah, that mystery. bit of mystery still. That's right. That's right.
this is Rob Hoffman, studio musician and engineer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. I'd like to talk about post-2006. So we covered the trial era and, and how Michael was working on some songs there. But then when Michael returned to the US, basically in Christmas 2006, did you get back in touch with him? Were you, you continued to work with him after that time as well? We, we worked throughout 2007. So he was with Prince Abdullah in, we went to Bahrain after the trial and I talked to Prince Abdullah a couple times on the phone. They would call me sometimes. And for 2006, I'm being trained as an airline pilot. So I'm kind of involved with that. Now, in 2007, I'm now working with him again for basically the entire year. And during that time, you know, we were in Vegas and it was never the way it used to be, right? When we were up at the ranch or too much had happened in terms of the trial, it just knocked the living crap out of him. He was heavily in debt. You know, all this is public record. It's not, I'm not saying anything out of turn. We didn't have a record deal. There was no talk about touring. You know, so I, I worked with him through 2007, but, you know, I've been type rated in a jet in a large commercial airliner and I'm getting older. And so I thought, well, you know, he owed people money and all this is public. And all. So I went and got hired by an airlines and I kept working with him through the beginning of 2008, but I was unwilling to quit the airlines because quite frankly, if I quit the airlines, I was too old to ever, you can't quit an airline and ever get hired by another airline, mm. especially when you're older and I'm older. You know, I was 49. He begged me one night where me and Michael Prince are in, we were staying in a casino hotel and he was living at that rented place in North Las Vegas. And so I'm on the phone with him. It's 1230 midnight. Michael Prince is right there. And for 20 minutes, he, he goes, I don't want to work with anybody but you. You have to quit the airline. You have to do this. And I, you know, I'm looking at Michael Prince and I go, this is, you know, so great and stuff. But I, I, I didn't, I wasn't going to quit the airline. And so I didn't. For a couple months after that, I was still, when I wasn't flying, I was still commuting back and forth to Las Vegas. I'm working on stuff with him. But he didn't like that, that he couldn't kind of have me full-time the way he wanted. And so, you know, we just sort of took a break from it. Basically, when months later, you know, it was announced that he was going to do the O2 gig. And so, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where I kind of had a sense it was just time to, I'm glad I made the decision I made. I had the best time with him I've ever had with any human being on the planet. And it doesn't mean you have to, like, do the same thing forever or try to do the same thing forever. It's like, it's good sometimes to move on to different things and, you know, get different experiences in life. And then, and, you know, I love the flying and I still do music. I have a beautiful studio in my house and I had the, the most rewarding life with him a human being can imagine. And I'm, I'm hugely grateful for that. So in the last days that I was working with him, you know, nothing was the same, you know, very dark, very different, you know, just different. So it's like, you know, that's 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 kind of how you know how how everything happened. In a way, were you relieved that you didn't get asked to work, or if you were asked to work on this, is it? He begged me not to leave him because I wouldn't quit the airlines. He didn't ask me to do this. Is it? You know, all I would have had to have done is quit the airlines and work with them full time, and we were already working on music, which I didn't even know it was for the tour. 
because it wasn't really song stuff. It was like intros to what you do on for a touring situation. You know, we're working on motifs, right? On sonic landscapes as opposed to songs. I just, you know, I, I don't care. I just work on whatever he wants to work on. But I'm glad I made the decision I made. And it's just, uh, just how things go down. You know, that's it. It's that simple. So my years with one of the very best years, I, I think that in, you know, that was Michael's career as it was maturing. He was no longer a kid, no longer with the Jackson 5, no longer with Quincy. It was just him. And I was there. I did every live performance he did from 1989 till he died. And that's good enough for me. So, you know, we're just very lucky to have uh, been able to do that. Can I ask a quick question about the um, Bottom of my, my Heart Katrina song? Right. Okay. Um, how complete did that track become? Like, did Michael lay down vocals on it or was it really just a lot of instrumental and still very early demo? I'd have to go back and look at that because okay. we were also working on another track called Light the Way. And we were doing that when he was in Bahrain. We were doing that over the phone. That was 2005. I remember a great big choir came to my house and Michael Prince was there. Keith Cohn was the engineer. We had like 80 singers at my house recording. And I need to listen to the tracks because there's, I've worked on so many things with them. I just, rather than comment on individual tracks like that, I need to sit with the tracks so I can give you, I can give you good answers. Because I don't, I don't know. It's kind of blurry around that time. Fair enough. There's a lot of stuff I can imagine. A lot it would of stuff. Be. <laughs> a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Yeah. Were there any really amazing tracks, like maybe like the Light the Way or anything like that, that you really wish had got completed, that you wish you could have pushed on and worked further on? I would have loved to have seen what new tracks we would have come up with more than anything else. As far as tracks and development like Adore You or a bu bunch of the stuff that's on the list, Rich Girl, any of those types, it would have been great to develop those. But I think that the most important thing for me, rather than wishing that some of those would have come out, and, you know, Adore You would have been an amazing spiritual track along the lines of, of Will You Be There. It's just so cool and so basic. And we have choirs on that and stuff. But I would have more than that loved to have seen what him and I would have put together along the lines of Stranger in Moscow's or the Beautiful Girls or the In the Backs. I would have loved to have seen another batch of that. Yeah. I can't imagine what we would have been able to do. It would have been amazing. I've got to ask, Rich Girl, is it a Hall & Oates cover or is it an original? Oh, no, it's an original. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. No, it's not anything to do with Hall & Oates. It's just, uh, yeah, that's what we call this Rich Girl. What's one of the funniest stories you remember about a time that you were with Michael? He, his driving sucked. Um, he, <laughs> he, I had a Mercedes and it was up at the ranch. And so I'd be driving his personal golf cart and he'd be driving my Mercedes. And his personal golf cart was so loaded up with heaters because he was always cold that the thing traveled about three miles an hour. It barely moved. But it had a, <laughs> a top to it and it was very fancy and it had a loud radio. I had a, a nice brand new Mercedes and I remember him hitting something at the ranch with it. He, he didn't destroy it, but he, he hit something, the front end of it, he hit a wall or something, right? And it wasn't terrible damage or anything, but he goes, you're going to kill me. You're going to kill me. And he, I go, what? And he goes, I hit something with your car. And I go, well, is it bad? And he goes, no. And I go, well, Michael's fine. You know, it's like, so he, he wasn't a great driver. He wasn't, he wasn't terrible. He just wasn't great. 
<laughs> so, and he he really didn't he really didn't drive much. I remember driving him once from the ranch into L.A. It was just me and him, and we're in a van. I don't know why we were in a van, but I'm driving him in a van. And he's just sitting there next to me, and I'm giving him a space because the last thing in the world you want to do is like you always want to let the other person do the you know see how much they want to talk, right? Because they're at a supremely high level and you're just yourself. So, you know, you always want to be quiet unless they want to talk. And so, you know, we're just driving and he's talking sometimes and sometimes it's quiet, but it would have been very unnatural for him to, for instance, drive himself into LA from the ranch. I'm sure he had a driver's license, but I don't ever remember him driving at all, except my car up at the ranch. Like I think when he would go to the toy stores and take his children or whatever, I think like security took him. So I don't really ever remember him in a car going anywhere besides driving up at the ranch in my car. So that was probably enough. I would say from what we've heard, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, this is a question that we ask every single one of our special guests. So Brad Buxer, how should Michael be remembered as the greatest artist of all time and giving the most amazing gift to the world that any performer has ever given. He's the greatest, in my opinion, and probably everyone else's too, the greatest performer that's ever existed. And that's how he should be remembered. You know, what he gave to the world with his talent, which God gave to him, he was just born with it. But that talent, I don't believe will ever be equaled, and I've never seen anything close to it. And I still, you know, just when I see a video of him dancing or when I just see, and believe me, I'm not one of these people who, not starstruck, I'm not even into things that, you know, some people are so into the latest artists, or I don't care about any of that. I just know great art, and he's the greatest artist of all time ever. Point blank, that's nothing even close to it, and that's how he should be remembered. You know, he's Einstein, he's Da Vinci, he's Newton, he's the greatest that's ever existed at what he does. That's how we should be remembered. God bless his soul. God bless his soul. God bless him. God love that answer. I love him. That's that's all. That's the show. I I guess all I wanted to ask was, what does the future hold for you, Brad? What do what are your plans? I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Be happy flying. That's for one of you. Thanks, Jamin and Q. Wonderful working with you guys. Thank you. Uh, my my mind is just like swimming because I've learned so much. <laughs> this has been so incredible. Wow. Well, I'm 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 so glad. And the thing is, is, you guys have just just been wonderful. And I would love to do anything in the future you guys want to do. I, I, I'm there. You guys are totally pro. Thank you. Totally nice. The questions have been great, and I I couldn't be more comfortable with this whole situation. So I want to say thank you both to you for how nice. You're welcome. What a nice experience. So welcome. I could not imagine a more incredible episode for our 100th. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for this positivity and this, this focus on his art and on creative process. You know, this year has been a bit rough and we really needed something like this. So this has just been incredible for us, but also for our listeners. They're going to really appreciate having this lens turned back to his art and him as a person and his creativity. So that's something that I really want to say thank you for. Really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the platform. Thank you. 
You're welcome. Listen, listen, you guys. Um, do do feel free to call me and stay in touch with me and whatever you guys need or questions or whatever, right? And I really would like to do some more stuff with you. I think you guys are terrific. I mean that. So wow, thank you. Thank you. Hello, Moonwalkers. This is Jenkins from that other Michael Jackson podcast, Moonwalk Talks. I just had to come out of hiding for a moment to give everyone at the MJ cast a huge congrats on reaching the amazing milestone of 100 episodes. That's outstanding. 100 episodes? My podcast like ain't even made it to like 30 or something episodes. I mean, like the Jackson 5 cartoon only made it to like 23 episodes and the Jackson Variety Show, it only had like 12 episodes. So a hundred episodes, that's like more than all of us combined. But, but seriously, the MJ cast are the hardest working, most dedicated source for everything Michael Jackson. And we all appreciate everything you guys do. It is an honor to call you all teammates and friends. I mean, I was kind of there from like day one you know so that's pretty cool <laughs> all right i'll see you guys at the 200 episode mark and at that point moonwalk talks would be like on episode 36 anyway much love to everyone and don't forget to smile hey this is yannica from jackson Soros, and i just wanted to say we made it you guys did a hundred episodes so i just wanted to congratulate the entire mj cause team on for this effort and it's an amazing achievement so congratulations and i'm really proud to be part of your journey even though it's only for the past couple of episodes but i cannot wait for a hundred more so congratulations enjoy hey this is chris lacy with albumism.com and i want to congratulate the mj cast for reaching 100 episodes i am so excited to see what you guys have in store for the next 100 to everyone at mj cast This is Linton Guest, the author of The Trials of Michael Jackson. I'm sending you many congratulations on reaching your 100th show. I remember when you guys first started. It's amazing to see how you progressed, and it was a privilege to appear on your podcast. Here's to your next 100 and many more after that. Love to you all and all your listeners, wherever you may be. Hi, all you MGA fans. Dick Zimmerman here, thriller photographer and major admiration always for the King of Pop. Wishing the MJ cast congratulations for their first 100 shows and many more guys. Have a great day. Congratulations to the MJ cast on reaching 100 episodes. That is quite a milestone. This is Andy from the MJ 101 series. And thank you guys for everything you have done for the MJ community and for allowing myself on to discuss Michael's music and greatness that is held within. I look forward to hearing the next 100 episodes, which at the rate that you guys release should be in about three weeks. Congratulations again. And as you say, keep Michaeling. Hi, this is Michael Prince, studio engineer and producer with Michael Jackson, an all-around awesome guy. I'd just like to congratulate the MJ cast on 100 episodes. Simply amazing. Hope you're enjoying this one with my best friend, Brad Buxer. This is Ryan Michaels from the Reasonbound podcast, sending a message from Japan. 
A great experience for me was when I did Pirates in Neverland, which was episode 10 of my own, and was asked by Charles Thompson about doing a simulcast for the MJ Casts episode 58. At that time, getting to meet and talk with the people who produce the show was a good and memorable experience. Now that episode 100 is here, I wanted to congratulate everyone who's worked on the podcast, website, etc., etc., for all of the great content they've put out since they started and have continued to do as they've become so popular. I really want to say I think the MJ Cast is a great show for listeners who appreciated the artist and support the truth about the man in good times and bad. And in trials and tribulations, doubts and frustrations, there are those needing a place they can turn and know that people will be there. So thanks for being there, everything you do, and here's to the next 100. Congratulations. Hi, this is Thijs from the European Jackson event, August 24th in Holland. Our team would like to congratulate the MJ Goss with their 100th episode. Love from Holland. Hi, this is Terrell Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Congratulations on 100 shows. Happy 100 episodes, listeners. Wow. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm swimming in the ocean with the, the detail. And yeah, like I said to him, there's going to be some track names and stuff that's going to cause a bit of a, a meltdown in the community. And I just want to say also that he didn't play anything to us. We're not song traders. He's not giving us music. <laughs> we are not... Mate, I have – Jamin, I deal with all these people like, oh, you know, you heard this from Michael Prince. We don't have any tracks from Michael Prince. With the stuff that was in that show, you know, it got deleted. We don't have any of that stuff. We don't do that. So no one come at me and go, oh, what did Brad Buxer give you and did he play you? No, we didn't hear anything. He didn't give us anything. We're not in that community. That's a whole different – whole different section of fans that we're not involved in but um just the the stories is what we're here for and we've presented you with everything that we heard today happy 100th episode yeah happy 100 episodes how do you feel well i'm to be honest with you i'm sort of like a little bit in shock because i remember i don't know what it was i think we 
I think when we did the 50th episode or something way back a couple of seasons ago, somebody submitted an audio snippet to us. It might have actually been um, Karen and Elizabeth submitted an audio snippet that was like, you'll be at 100 shows in no time. And <laughs> what was going through my head was, are you kidding? Like <laughs> every episode's like a marathon, you know, like I don't know if we're going to be able to keep, you know, going that long. But here we are, 100 episodes, we've done it. So congrats, man. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Your baby has just turned a hundred. I don't know if that (laughs) makes you feel old or not. Um, What was interesting at the start of this interview was he did like the first third of our questions without even us even asking the questions. I know. I know. He raced through. You were freaking out, but like he was answering the questions. I was like trying to keep up with, okay, well he's ticked that one off. He's ticked that one off. He's spoken about Stevie wonder and you know, things like that. So the first half went really fast. It did. And and in the group chat, you were saying that's sort of how pilots operate. Yeah, it's the, it's like a different communication. We have a whole, in our recurrent training, there's a whole section called CRM, which is, I think, crew resource management. And it's about communication between the flight deck and behind the door, the, the cabin crew on the other side of the door. And because we think and operate and communicate in such very different ways. And then I started picking up on that, even in just this sort of conversation. So if you ask a question, you'll get the detail, the detail, the detail. And often you don't need to push for any other detail. It's going to come by itself. Yeah. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Are there any areas you you wish we could have gone into a bit more? Like we didn't get through all of our questions. We got through about 90% of them, but there's a few we, we didn't. Yeah, I think he touched on a lot of the stuff generally that we didn't get through. We didn't, and he was volunteering some information about, you know, Gloucestershire and beautiful girl and things that we were going to ask about anyway. We touched on ghosts, but like he said, you know, he'd have to go back and really listen to a lot of this stuff because there's so many different songs. I, I don't think we're missing, you know, we, we did ask him about history to a lip syncing. And he was not really comfortable talking about that. So we we just left it. We didn't go into it. We didn't push it. It's not our place. So if he's not comfortable, then that's that's fine with us. Yeah, he did ask for us to edit that little bit out of the show. So if you're wondering why there's a sort of, you know, we didn't ask that, we, we did, but <laughs> that's yeah, cool. Yeah, and we that's no problem. Yeah. yeah, we respect our guests, absolutely. Um, and I don't think, you know, we're lacking in anything really. Gosh, wow, what a what a career. And like he said near the end, he was there from like, you know, 89 till, till near the end. And he really did see some of the most incredible and the most quality, the most meaningful art that Michael ever did create. Yeah, I mean, sort of the way I sort of have always divided it in my head was – you know, Michael's career into sort of thirds, like Jackson's and Jackson 5, and then the the Quincy stuff. And Michael was, you know, very artistic during that time. But as we know, Quincy ended up producing a lot of that stuff, even though Michael made it. And then there's the 90s onwards, which is where Michael really started to create his own independent sound. And Brad was the man who allowed him that freedom. That's sort of how I think of it. So he really was there during Michael's artistic... Uh, how do I word this? Um, evolution? Yeah. like And also coming, him, it's, as I guess, artist. more than coming of age. It was, you know, yeah, he was growing into 
who he was and his art was also doing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fascinating guy to talk to. And I, I was particularly interested in the different approach he had to Michael as a musical director on the tours than than other people like Phil and Gaines and maybe even, you know, Michael Beard and, and how he just he saw it as his role to just whatever Michael wanted, he made happen. That I found that yep. really interesting. Yeah. Matter of fact, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Thank you to yourself for putting these questions together. Thank you to Andy Healy and Damien Shields that also submitted some questions that we did use today. So a credit to them as well. Thank you, gentlemen. Absolutely. And thank you, Q, as well, for your questions and, and for being oh, here with I me. think I added I added like three. It was like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> three awesome this ones. This is well, I don't know. You know, this is your strength, is you know, these behind the musical scenes producers and technical stuff. That's that's definitely your strength compared to, to me. I'm like, that's that's yeah, that's your forte. Oh, regular, regular and you do it very well. Back, well, there you go. <laughs> we, we have a balance. <laughs> Thank you to our listeners for getting us to 100 episodes. Absolutely. Give yourselves all a, a round of applause and a big, big old MJ cast hug. We really appreciate that. <laughs> you know, otherwise it's just us talking on the phone. It's not a podcast without listeners. So thank you and our appreciation. And thank you to Elise for helping with our show notes and all the backend stuff. To James Allay that helped sort out some technical issues with websites, server stuff recently. Also, appreciate James Allais' help in the background and all those people that sent in incredible congratulatory messages for our 100th episode. We hope you enjoyed those. I think we're both wondering and scratching our heads how on earth we're going to fit those in because the <laughs> conversation was so linear. I don't know. I actually don't know how we're going to break up that conversation. I got it. It's in my head. <laughs> all right. We need well, to choose a I- few songs and put them in at key moments. And- yeah. yeah, but what incredible messages we got off people as well. Yeah. They I, were some amazing ones. Hearing them come in over the past two weeks has been like, you know, a really big deal for me to hear that. Like, it's really, I don't know, it was just a, it's been really special hearing back from all those special guests we've had in the past and how much they've enjoyed coming on. And I look forward to working with a lot of those people again in the future. There's people I would love to do part twos with. Um, I've got ideas around maybe one day you know long term in the future we could do shows where it's like a theme rather than a round table but maybe it's a topic and then we're building in snippets of other interviews we've done about that topic and oh yeah there's lots of we've got a whole back catalog now we can work with around topics and themes and i'm I'm very excited for where we could go so yeah (laughs) you probably people out there that are listening are probably thinking oh well didn't jamin just (laughs) put something online a couple of weeks ago about wanting to to finish up at the mj cast and well i yeah been doing a lot of soul searching and let's just say that's not so clear anymore so love i love what i do and i don't think i can give it up as as easily as what i thought i could a few weeks ago (laughs) <laughs> Jamin will be around. Yeah. Jamin will be around. <laughs> so, Q, as we're wrapping up, where can people find the show? All over the interwebs. Uh, social media, for example, we have a Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can email us, themjcast at icloud.com. 
We're also on YouTube and then we're a podcast. So you'll be able to find us on podcast apps. We are on Android podcast apps. We're also on Apple podcasts. Just open a podcast app and search the MJ cast and you will find us. So you've got news. Yeah. I was just going to pass that to you because you know more about that. We're on Spotify. Yeah, it's really exciting. So, I mean, this is a cross-platform app. It's on Android and on Apple, and it's super popular. As you know, it's one. Of, it's probably the most popular music streaming service in the world, but they've recently included podcasts in their catalog. So we've got a lot of listeners right now on social media talking about wanting to listen to us on Spotify. So definitely head over there, hit subscribe, and then you can get our shows up to date with show notes delivered to your device on Spotify. Nice. I just want to say thank you to you and to our listeners again as I wrap up and and bid farewell for 100 amazing episodes, 101 if you include your little episode 000. Um, (laughs) But, you know, 100 episodes, it's a huge milestone for any podcast. It's It's changed my appreciation for Michael and fulfilled that need that I've had to want to give back and thank Michael for all he gave to us. Like I, I don't see myself as a journalist or some sort of huge figurehead in the community at all. I'm just a guy literally sitting at my dining room table talking to my friends and collaborators of Michael to share their stories. I'm just a fan. And this show is just put together by fans. And that's always what it's going to be for me. So thank you, everyone. I'm, I'm going to sign off now but Jamin thanks for a great episode Brad Buxer thank you for a great episode thank you to listeners and thank you to those that submitted and have helped us get us where we are so thank you Michael Long thanks Q that was really special and just a huge big I love you to you as well big hugs thank you for everything that we've been through and accomplished together in the last 100 episodes and thank you to all listeners as well and it's exciting to see where we can go in the future keep Michaeling Jay Cast.